Welcome to another episode of Ideas Into Action. I'm your host, Hamza Khan, and our producer, as always, is Kwaku Ajimang, a.k.a. Kwaku on Air, a.k.a. The Grind Won't Stop, The Hustle Won't Quit. This morning, I saw his IG story from last night at 1 a.m. by the studio, and here he is just under 12 hours later, fresher than ever. Goddamn. Today's guest is someone who I've orbited for a number of years. We interacted with each other online, saw each other in passing at various events until finally late last year. He was gracious enough to sit in on an influencer marketing panel for my social media class at Ryerson University. And when we finally met, I felt as though I've known this man my entire life. Friends, I'm honored to have on this episode of Ideas Into Action none other than Mafuz Chaudhry. He's an award-winning account manager at Candybox Marketing, a digital marketing agency that has worked with big baller brands like Domino's Pizza, The Weather Network, So You Think You Can Dance, Glee, Fox Entertainment, and Advertising Week. He's also the author of Project Reinvention, The Social Timeline of a Millennial, a book where he openly and honestly recollects his journey from self-described abject failure to someone now focused and steadfast on the path to success. And last but not least, he's also the host of The Ride With Me podcast, a spiritual successor to what Dead Mouse did with Coffee Run and what you now see Jerry Seinfeld and others doing with their shows. In this episode, we talked about lessons from retail, blue-collar work ethic, and hitting rock bottom. It was a candid, refreshing, and at times hilarious conversation. We also talked about sleep as a competitive advantage, drawing energy from your outfits, and staying sane on social media. As always, my friends, you are in for a treat. Ready? Let's do this. Well, Mafus Chodi, let me take you for a ride over here, bro. Let's do this it, is man. Uh, this is not quite a ride with me podcast. <laughs> We're going to be stationary for most of it. I got to say, man, as soon as you walked in, I saw the outfit and my heart sank a little. I rolled the dice this morning. I brought out the Mafus Chodri special, bro. I brought the blue blazer, the black V-neck, and you didn't bring it, bro. But I'm, you came in with the, you came in hot with the blue. I I got the hint with the black and blue. I think <laughs> I think we were like psychopathically somehow connected and we communicated the colors so i got it in there but yeah i'm underdressed man way to go bro i mean i think you're you're perfectly dressed for this podcast i actually have a question for you later on about how your attire how the way you dress contributes to your energy but before we get into that bro you're going to be the first person to be subject to a brand new segment on the ideas into action i'm so excited first time we're doing this it was inspired Stolen from uh, <laughs> Nardwar, the human serviette. You okay. know Nardwar? No, I don't. You know the guy who wears like the all, I don't know what that pattern is. It's plaid pattern, I think. Okay. Um, and he has like a little, like, like he dress, dresses in like very flamboyant Scottish attire. And he interviews all these guests, all these uh, uh, artists. And at the end, he's like, doot, 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 doot. And they have to fill it in blanks. Doot, doot. You don't know this? <laughs> no. Damn, bro. No. Okay. Huge part of my, my my childhood growing up watching MTV. What he does in the beginning is he bestows his illustrious guests okay. with a gift or gift or two. Uh, more than two gifts, actually. And he gets the guests to speak about what feelings, what memories those gifts evoke. So, Mafus Chaudhry, right off the bat, we here at Ideas Into Action have a gift for you. Oh, no. Oh, no. It is... Oh, come on. A Tim Hortons ice cap to go, bro. I didn't even know this exists. It exists. And it is yours, sir. This is amazing. That This takes me way back. Bro, 300 calories, first of all. You drink that, you're not going to sleep. I'm not. You're staring at the ceiling all night. I I think I've got to a level where I'm so immune to caffeine that I actually want to test my limits now with this. Oh, bro, go Th- for it. This yeah. is a sample. This is fantastic. Thank you. In fact, uh, I used to live at Markham and Shepherd, right across from Nugget Mosque. Shout out to IFS. Yeah. And they had a Tim Hortons right over there. I swear to God, okay, this is going to be a little dark. If I die of cancer, I think, I think it might be, it's likely that it will be caused by all the ice cap that I drank in my life, bro. 
I would drink an ice cap every single day, bro. And that's just <laughs> while I was living there. Throughout my life, I don't even know. It has to be in in like the the at least two three thousand range, bro. I'm sure that there is ice cap residue in my veins right now. I'm sure that <laughs> half my blood, like if, if you were to just cut my stomach open, wow, this is getting really dark over here. Yeah, you would see just lining of ice cap in there. Anyways, enough about me. Tell me about your connection with Tim Hortons. Oh my gosh, this is um, you have come in prepared. The fact that there's a <laughs> Tim Hortons logo looking me in the eye, um, I would say I spent about a, a third of my life. If I had to do the math, I think it's a very accurate number. A third of my life working at Tim Hortons Sporting Coffee. <laughs> and it's scary to even think about what a big number that is. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I, as someone who's been pouring coffee for such a long time, I have so much respect for the people on the other side of the counter. Um, as frustrating as it is when you're waiting in line and you can't believe how long sometimes they're taking it, I'm always going in with full respect to them because I remember what they've been through. I've been in those situations where the customers may be heated and you're tested. You know, it tests your limit. Do you need anger management at that time? That answer will be found within five minutes. Like that was the environment that you were in. Um, I'm, I always go into Tim Horns just waiting for the day that they finally say, oh, yeah, come come to my side and do it yourself. You know, <laughs> yeah. like I want to be called out so I can go in and do it. But it's uh, a big part of my life. I think aside from working in the marketing field, the only job that I've had and held on to full time was uh, pouring coffee at Tim Horns and um, I love the amount of things that I've learned about customer service. I can tell you that as much as people bash the starting job and the minimum wage job that they used to have once at a time, I don't bash it. I think it's taught me so much that I even apply today. Bro, I couldn't agree more, man. And uh, you know, we could talk about your experience at Montana's as well. I would bring in a rack of ribs for you over here. I cannot believe you even remember that. I don't think that we'd be allowed to bring a rack of yeah. ribs into the studio. But uh, man, who knows? When we get our own studio, eventually we might be able to eat on the podcast as well. <laughs> we'll make it happen. I'm glad you brought that up because my parents uh, have worked in customer service their entire life. My father and my mother together ran convenience stores. That's how they were able to amass their wealth and put... Uh, their kids through school, buy homes, buy cars, afford vacations, and the lifestyle that they did. And they're doing so in one of the most competitive environments mm. as far as customer service is concerned, or at least the convenience industry is concerned, not customer service. The convenience industry with Amazon Prime, with vending machines, with tap payment. I mean, you can get whatever you want from anywhere you want. The only reason why they have continued to succeed for decades customer service. Yes. They treat their customers right. They do right by their customers. They, I agree with you, I agree with you, uh, have taught me everything that I know about good customer service. Working in that store, working in those stores uh, throughout my childhood has really brought uh, a level of, of care and compassion and uh, understanding of the end user, of the customer, of the client that I wouldn't have had if I didn't participate in that. Yeah. And, and to me, it's also like, imagine being able to pay for a training where you can deal with hundreds of customers in one hour. Right. Right. And that's an epic moment because you have the ability to really gauge different kinds of personalities. Um, and fast food restaurants are interesting. And as you might have experienced from a grocery store standpoint as well, um, when you're getting hundreds of people coming in from an hour, some of them are patient and kind. Some of them are hasty and aggressive. Sure. But you were able to deal with them both. Like you want to get to a level where you can deal with different personalities. It's actually a great opportunity to get started. That's it. I was at the grocery store the other day and I had both of my uh, AirPods on. AirPods in? AirPods oh, you're in. in the team AirPods as well? Yeah, man. Uh, AirPod Astu Asawa sold me on the AirPods. Come on. I'm, I'm starting to, to do more of the AirPods than I am the, the over-the-ear uh, Bose 
Q35s to whatever they're called. Um, but man, I caught myself doing a terrible thing. I was in the grocery store line and I had both of my ear pods and I was listening to a podcast while I was checking out. And you could see that this person that was there wanted to make conversation with me. And I'm like, how did I become this this idiot? How did I become this person? <laughs> Take off your fucking earpods. Yep. Have a conversation because you were there not too long ago. You know that at the very least, offer the human decency to say, hi, hello, how's your evening going? Thank you so much. That's the least you can do. Yes. And man, I'm seeing that now. Now that after that experience, I've noticed it everywhere. I noticed it at Starbucks when I went to go pick up my drink. Somebody was irate in line. Because the line was moving too slow. I'm like, can you give it a 30-second pause? Mm -hmm. Like, there's a whole array of people, one person working over there, just busting his ass, whipping together every drink in the book. And you're getting upset. You're breathing heavy. You're rolling your eyes and clicking your teeth. Like, let's let's calm down, man. And being in that environment, okay. we, we feel like we're almost the protectors now. Yes. Like, now that we've graduated from that situation that we used to be in, we now feel like we're at that level where we should say something to the customers that are getting irate and are starting to roll their eyes. I think someone needs to speak up. And usually the person on that side of the counter is under complete fear, right? Well, they don't want to lose their job. What kind of retail or frontline service jobs have you done? So you've done Tim Hortons, you've done Montana's. Montana's. Um, I worked at a um, a restaurant many years ago. I can't even remember the name because I was only there for a week. Yeah. And very quickly they moved me from the front to the dishwashing station. Hey, you're terrible uh, with the customers, Mafuz. Man, <laughs> man, it was like you just seem like you'd be better off washing dishes. Was basically the message that was given okay, to me. No people skills. Guys. Yeah, no people skills. I was told many things that um, at that time I actually believed it. I was a very shy guy. You know, I was. You were young. Right? Yeah, I was young. I was in an environment where, when customers would come in, I would stutter all over my words, and sometimes, um, I would come off as being rude and ignoring them. So eventually, the boss stepped in and said something about it. Um, it was an it was an awareness thing. I think I needed that wake up call of being notified that I need to speak up a bit more and get better at my communication. So those helped as well, even if it was a week. Interesting, man. And so uh, I, I, I think about, I was thinking about where it is that I worked in retail or frontline staff. I worked at Sears. I worked in furniture. I worked then in um, home. Uh, I've worked at a health food store, like a GMC equivalent, and with my parents' convenience store. Such a an, an invaluable experience. Such that if and when I decide to have children, start a family, uh, I will insist almost that they push go them work. there. You have to. You have to. Yes. I don't want to insulate you from that. You need to experience that. All the highs and lows, the the heartbreak, the the difficult customers. I mean, that was such a character building series of years in my life, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. That's such a great parenting advice. Um, I have a friend of mine that his. Um, uncle is now a multimillionaire, owns a beautiful mansion on Mississauga Road. But what I love and respect the most about him is he has a rule of thumb where the only thing he would do for his kids is pay for their education. Wow. And once they graduate, they get zero dollars in the bank account. They're on their own. Um, and he put pressure on his kids to go out there and get that experience, get that job. Damn. So things like the retail jobs yeah. and the fast food chains, they're working there. And when they graduated, they went out there and found their own position to work into. So aside from the stress of needing to balance a job while you're at school, yeah. they were on their own. And I got to tell you, they've grown up to be great people. I've grown up with those kids, and they're running their own real estate firm, and they did it all by themselves. Good for them, man. I, I admire that. And I, I admire some of my some of the, the, the Italians in my network. Um, the way that they were parented, the way that their families are structured, I find a lot of similarities with how South Asians, specifically Indians, that's and, and Pakistanis structure their families as well. Try to try to try to instill good work ethic into their mm. kids. I had this. I had this uh, a student in my class several years ago. I think her name was Nicole. Uh, very well behaved, very well mannered, very smart. 
very helpful, pleasant throughout the entire college experience. I was teaching at Seneca College. And um, when I asked her, what is it that she did? She's like, oh, I work at Tim Hortons. I work, uh, you know, doing essentially what you're doing, just pouring coffee, taking care of the customers, serving up Timbits and cookies and all that. Turns out that her father owns 20 Tim Hortons. Wow. Right, he owns 20 Tim Hortons, yeah. like multi, multi-millionaire. And I only saw it after, like, I saw her Instagram and I'm like, whoa, like, you are living really good. And I, and I asked her, I'm like, hey, Nicole, like, why, why are you working, why are you working there, man? Like, you could do anything right. you want. You don't have to work at Tim Hortons. She's like, no, my father won't let me near the business <laughs> until I put in years That's working out. so good. You know, I, this is what I respect about Tim Hortons as a brand. Um, you know, we're marketers and we can go on and on about different brands. But my favorite thing from looking at Tim Hortons from the inside out and seeing how they operate was what made me respect the brand the most. We had someone that flew in from Japan with a you know multi-million dollar um, multi-million dollars in the bank ready to purchase a Tim Horn store. You know, he came down here with his wife. He did some research and he recognized, hey, this is where the opportunity is. They have one of the biggest chain in the country, so let's go buy a store and let's operate that way. They walked into the head office, they laid down a check and they said, we would like to purchase one of your stores. And the company responded back by saying, we will not give you a store until you prove to us that you're ready to operate as an owner right. because we refuse to diminish the quality of our brand by letting someone who isn't ready to take on that role. So he, him and his wife ended up joining our Tim Horns when I was working there as a baker. Wow. And he was, you know, imagine this guy that like lived like a king in his country, came in here and he was baking cookies and donuts and he snapped in his first week. He snapped yeah. the moment yeah, he yeah. was asked to pick up a mop. Sure. And he said, I have so much money in my bank account. I shouldn't be doing this. This is ridiculous. I quit. And he quit and he, I've never seen him again. Man, uh, I forget her name. It was I was watching TEDx Don Mills the live the live stream yesterday, and their first speaker, I think uh, her name is Mary Renahan. I could be getting that wrong, but she's the CEO of Blue Collar, uh, Blue Collar CEO. She's the CEO of Blue Collar CEO. <laughs> she talked about the value of having a blue collar work ethic, no matter what you're doing. Yes, and. Um, you know, she talked about the importance of having a technical skill, having multiple technical skills as essential to leveling up and becoming a leader and owning your own business and all of that. You and I both worked in agencies. You know, we uh, you're at Candy Box Marketing right now. I had Splash Effect prior to that. I worked in a couple of others. I wouldn't be successful if I didn't know how to do things like build websites. Bingo do some graphic design, not afraid to roll up my sleeves and be like, hey, I'm not above this work. This is honorable work. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and do the work myself. We talked earlier, right before we went live, that you built websites back in the day. I did, yeah. Is that Was that your your, your specialty skill as a marketer? Did you have- Not What at else all. is in your toolbox? I, I mean, I picked up Dreamweaver when it was the only thing that you could use to make a website. Oh, so, man. man, I was a Dreamweaver king. Like, oh, I was the export guy- Export your websites and- Yeah, export it, them. pass on HTML yeah. files, build an iframe. Like, Jeez. I was I was the coolest of the coolest. You know, my guestbook had probably more signatures on it than anyone else's. Oh, but, guestbook signatures. But, but the problem was, <laughs> it, you know, to industry standards, even back then, it was a disgusting website. Yeah. And I was at a position where I had to accept that I'm not actually in the web industry. I'm in the marketing industry, mm -hmm. although our skills can work very well with great designers. Yeah. So I stopped owning up to the idea of me being a web designer or having any of those skills. So as much as I think those skills can help, I think you need to find your place in an agency. But the good news is there's so many places. And when people come up to me, and I'm sure you've seen this a lot when you were uh, working for the company and you had a lot of people maybe reaching out to you on LinkedIn yes. asking for a job, sometimes they would say, I just want to work in marketing. 
And you and I both know that there is a deeper question beyond that, yep. which is what is it in marketing that, that you, you want to do? do? Exactly. There's so many sectors to it. So it's always fun for me to dive in and figure out what they want to do. And more often than not, they have no idea. They just know that marketing oh. has been a top topic and they yes. want to be part of that conversation. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer for the longest time. Yes. And then I actually spent a day shadowing a lawyer. And at the end of that day, he's like, don't do this. This is terrible. If I could do it all over again, I wouldn't become a lawyer. It was just paperwork all right. day, just sitting down, getting coffee, looking stressed, popping pills, and just shuffling paperwork. It That's makes what being a lawyer. Yes. It makes me think about how many people watch uh, shows like The Suits. Yes. And they're like, man, being lawyer, right being a lawyer must be so cool. Glamorous. and yeah. Right. Like, I can be a Harvey Specter. I can be a Don Draper in Mad Men. Like, yeah, people yeah, try yeah. to... Um, put these positions in a pedestal based on what they see on TV and then they get the realization that maybe it's not the good fit. Yeah. And I actually think that's a big problem with what's happening right now with students coming out of college and university where they have expectations of what the role is and maybe they didn't do a co-op work term. Maybe oh. they didn't get involved in an internship and then they get slapped in the face with the idea that this job was nothing like they expected it to be. So if they actually put a camera following you around for an entire week, what would marketing actually look like? What would being an account manager <laughs> actually look like? I, How I, boring would it be, bro? It's Now, the thing is, like, it's, it would be boring for the people that thought they'd be living the Don Draper life. Yeah. I really think that's a, that is the aspect. But I think there's a lot of people that would find it to be a lot more interesting in different areas than what they initially thought. Um, you know, a very small percentage of my time is actually spent pitching to the clients. Yes. Uh, majority of the time is spent working with my team internally and bringing these ideas to life. And a lot of time is spent on writing boring creative briefs. Right. You're hunched over your laptop, yep. you're on your phone. Headphones on. Crossing off tasks. You right. Know? curating Spotify playlists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have our own Spotify playlist yes. now where our entire team just pours music into it and um, it keeps things fun. Is it true you have an in-house DJ? Um, we have an in-house individual that also DJs. Okay, fair. <laughs> so so, so <laughs> he's, not, thing, he's yeah. not there per se to set up his turntables and jam out, but yeah. he, he does DJing on the side. So we do make him in charge of uh, loading up our Spotify playlist and getting Google Home going in the first thing in the morning. But I mean, when you have creative people, it's hard. It's hard because they need things to do to keep themselves entertained. Mm -hmm. um, they hate boredom. You know, I have a rule of thumb, and I said this just two days ago, where I would rather be stressed than bored. Wow, I would rather be stressed than bored. And you know what? You're right. There's actually a principle, a framework that illustrates that. I talk about it quite often. The Yerkes Dodson Law talks about the relationship between the amount of challenge and the amount of performance that's generated proportionally, such that if there's a low amount of challenge, your performance is low. If there's a too high of, of, of challenge, your performance is also low. You want just the right amount of stress to achieve uh, productive anxiety, essentially. Yes. Yeah, and, and you think about environments where when you're stressed, it's more often than not because you have a lot on the plate. Right. And you actually have control of that environment. You can move things around. You can shuffle priorities. You can delegate. Where if you're bored, usually it's because you have lack of work. Right. Now, unless you roll up your sleeves and migrate into a sales position and start bringing in more sales, you're kind of in a situation where you're waiting for work. So having control has become a big part of it. Um, my biggest challenge working with Candybox is we've just grown so much. You know, when I started working for Candybox Marketing, it was just myself and the CEO, Daryl Keezer, and we were working out of our bedrooms. Wow. We didn't have an office. I would wake up in the morning. Um, I would get changed to make myself feel more presentable and professional, and I would sit down on my desk, which was built from cheap IKEA furniture, and I'd go to town. And that would be my full day of just running an eight-hour day. Um, and now we're in an environment where we're above 22 people. 
and they're all full-time working in-house. And as an account manager, my biggest challenging thing is, what the hell do I do with this many people <laughs> in my department? Yeah, How do I manage them? It was easy to manage one intern under sure. me. Now managing an art department, a campaign department, developers. And it's become challenging to a point where I decided I would change gears in the way that I operate, where I would be less a manager and more of a coach. And that involved me going up to the team and being very transparent, saying, guys, this is new to me. I've never had to manage this many people. And I also understand that every one of you need to be managed in a different way. You have different expectations. I want to take in your feedback, and I want us to together construct a process that makes sense for everybody. You may not get everything that you want, but you get just enough to feel like you're an important part of the company. So everyone got their say. We rebuilt the entire process, and now we have a setup that's very different from what it used to be five years ago. But it is so much more enjoyable for the team and the designers and developers feel like a big part of the company because now they're sitting in meetings and being part of the conversation right. rather than just getting a creative brief handed to them. They're invested in the process and I love that. You've demonstrated that dichotomy between leadership and management. Uh, a manager, a traditional manager would have just shown up with a process and said, hey, plug into this, follow through on the briefs, follow through on the systems. You have no say in it whatsoever. I'll hear your feedback. I might consider it, AKA I'll throw it in the trash. You said, sit down, let's co-create. Even though you had a vision of where you wanted that system, that process to go, but you still let everyone buy into it. Yes, yeah. Now and you're seeing 22 staff members, you guys have Fortune 500 clients, you guys have the Weather Network, you guys have Fox Entertainment. Mm -hmm. I mean, the list goes on. You are just working with some bangers of clients out there. It's amazing. And, and the destination and the end goal is always the same, right? They want a website out or a campaign out at sure. this time. They want to see similar conversions in their numbers. But what's fun is that even though the result needs to still remain the same, the process of how you get to that result can dramatically change. Mm -hmm. And that has been changing every year for us where once upon a time, it was a CEO, myself, and we used to outsource a designer. It would be ludicrous to think that that same process would work with a team of in-house members where you know, with working with someone from the UK, you're sending out a brief to them and you get back results and you ask for changes. Imagine I did that in-house, how irrelevant some of the team members would right, feel. Right. Um, so the culture in our company has improved, the morale has improved. Amazing. And a lot of it came down to just listening and adjusting to the growth of the team rather than hoping that you can change the way that people work. And Mafuz, it all started on that crappy Ikea desk that you had. Yes. It all started in coffee shops in the proverbial gym that you and co-founder, the CEO, were shooting in. That brings me to my next gift for you. My next gift, <laughs> I it. think, I think is a is symbolic. It, it, it captures the spirit of the sweetness at the end of the journey, but it's also uh, marred by, by bitter experiences throughout. This, Mr. Mahfouz Chaudhry, is Birdie Bot's this Jelly Beans. This is amazing. This, this is, is amazing. A, this is, for lack of a better phrase, a candy box. <laughs> right? uh, I love it. Every flavor beans. I uh, got this from Harry Potter World when I went there last week. Oh, well, not last week. Went there last year. Uh, that would be amazing if I went last week. Just get away from this polar vortex for a while. Yep. This uh, has a string attached, though. I'm not going to give it to you right away. I'm okay. going to move it in increments closer to you. <laughs> it's sweet. I love it. Are you familiar with this? Like, have you had this? No, I haven't. Okay, bro, so I'm excited, Let man. me tell you the gimmick over there. Okay. 70 to 80% of these are sweet. They're all your traditional jelly beans flavors. They're like watermelon, grape, whatever. The others, 20 to 30%, earwax. Oh, come soil. on. Shit. Like, I'm not even kidding. Just the worst flavors. So I would love to see you eat them maybe off air and just see what kind of random roulette of a jelly bean you get. But I'm going to get this candy closer to you, but you're going to have to answer some difficult questions okay. in the way. Okay. By the way, have you ever had the D Doritos roulette? 
What's Doritos roulette? Uh, so Doritos has a similar concept where they would give you different levels of spice um, inside okay. of one bag. So you're reaching in, and it's fun to play with people who have, <laughs> who cannot tolerate spice. Might be habanero, might be sriracha. Yeah, right? you might cry might be yourself. Ghost pepper might be. Yeah, <laughs> or you might just you know rip on how bad Doritos really is. Like you'll have a big range between them, um, and it's fun. It's fun to pass around the bag with a group of people and just see what they get. So this reminds me of it. Okay. I'm half terrified and half excited, but I promise you, I'll have a couple while we're here today. Oh, it's all good things in here. It's all good things in here, and uh, it's all part of it's all part of the experience, right? So. I, I liken this very much to your journey of actually becoming account manager at Candybox right now where you had to put up with a couple of some bad dinner, some crap yep. to eventually get to it. I but like the it. questions I'm going to ask are questions that I'm fascinated in. And I'm reading your book right now, Project Reinvention. Fascinating book. Thank and, you. And um, it's fascinating if for anything, the, the, the reason I, I find it so fascinating, if, if for anything, is because you've gone into great detail about failure. Most of the book hones in on those moments in your life that I call I never want to feel like that again moments. Mm -hmm. The Rock has that. Mark Cuban has that. Everyone has that. I mean, I was reading up on some of their bios recently. Mark Cuban and The Rock both had moments in their life where they tried to take money out of their ATMs or their banks and they had nothing there. They had like $7. They were in the, in the hole. They couldn't buy coffee. I've had moments like that in my life. Moments that I call I never want to feel like that again moments that have then provided the fuel that I need to move so far away from Very that Very interesting. Yes. You have three that you talk about in your book. And for every question that you go into, I'll move it a little closer. All right. right. I'll earn it. Let's go. Let's talk about how the fuck you racked up $30,000 in debt, bro. Oh, my gosh. Um, so where do I begin? I think one of, one of the things that needs to be stated in this podcast, especially for those who don't have context on me, is I am a terrible student. I'm terrible at it. I was getting low grades, and not per se because the the tests were hard or the content was hard. It was just that I had very little interest in majority of the subjects that were that were taking place at school. You know, when you go into marketing, you also still have to take accounting, finance, and other additional courses that maybe is not as exciting as the course that you want to do. So I went to University of Toronto, uh, great school, made some great friends there, but. I wasn't getting great, great. Which campus were you on? I was in the uh, Mississauga UTM campus. Right on. Shout out to UTM. Yeah, shout out to UTM. A great, big part of my history. I think I was there for two and a half years. And at the second year, I received a letter warning me that I'm about to be put on academic probation. Oh, no. At this point, I've already poured thousands of dollars every year into the education. So I'm, sure. I'm at the halfway point. And you're on OSAP, yeah? Yeah, I was on OSAP, which terrified me even more. Of course. And the biggest frustrating thing that I had, and I wish I even remembered his name, but it was a guidance counselor, which I was very thankful to find out that guidance counselor no longer works there. But <laughs> it was because of the fact that I sat across from him asking him for help. And at that point, I was taking business administration because I was still trying to figure out my way. I knew ha my role had something to do with business, just not quite sure where. Sure, so I asked him for help. And his biggest advice to me was to move away from business and try something else. What? And he said that I just wasn't cut. I just wasn't cut out for business. Oh my goodness! You're and not cut out for giving advice, bro. Yeah. <laughs> and and I I you know at that point I'm vulnerable, so I believed everything he said, and I was thinking about changing gears completely. Oh my. And God. I ended up you know dropping out of university and taking a year off. What? And believe it or not, during that year off, I sold myself on the fact that I was just going to work my way up to a manager role at Tim Hortons. Bro, hold on, hold on. You know, like I was at that spot. You're a Bengali boy <laughs> yeah. living with your family in Brampton. How'd you go face your parents and say, I got suspended? 
it it wasn't easy. I mean, they found out before I even got a chance to tell them. No, you know, how? Because we're you know you live in that lifestyle where your parents are opening up your mail. Like you know you, <laughs> Yo, you're you're, you're in a brown family. You got man. parents that don't trust you. Shout out to E E Statements now for your bank account. Yep. Man. I mean, imagine? they've already experienced um, many high school years where the phone calls would come in reminding them that I skipped class. No. So, so they were already at that point where they're gonna answer every phone and email and mail that comes. Oh, you're in a delinquent, man. What the hell? So so they found out and they obviously weren't happy and can you describe like what happened you walk you opened up the door and your mom was in tears what was going on bro my mom was definitely in tears uh, she lost a lot of hope in our future you know my parents come from a very uh troublesome background where they moved out of saudi arabia during a very difficult time and were they well off in saudi arabia they, they were doing well okay. yeah my mom never worked a day in her life down there and my dad was working as a contractor your so, mom was a homemaker though right? yes correct so technically she did work yeah i mean work a day in her life as in like uh like for to get paid. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah, for yeah, finances, sure. and she, they were at a position where um, they were doing well, and their entire family lived within maybe a fifteen kilometer radius of nice. where they were. So everyone yeah. was close. Their friends were there. They lived there all their life, and then one day they decided to wrap everything up and take off because there was a very difficult political time that was happening in Saudi Arabia, where we would literally see tanks across the street from our oh, buildings. Wow! And I remember being, you know, I was like six years old. And we would hear a siren go off. And that siren would be to acknowledge to everyone around them that there is a tank on the way or some kind of firearm passing by. So take cover and hide. That's literally all the government would do. They wouldn't vacate you. They wouldn't take you to a secure place. They would just let you know that shit's about to hit the fan. Do something about it. God, so I what, hear a fire alarm in my condo, and I'm like, oh, God. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, it's terrifying. Now, now, imagine like a siren, the scariest siren you'll ever hear that even now it's ringing in the back of my head. And my dad would cover us up with a plastic sheet and would put gas masks around my head. And no. I'm, just, I'm just a little kid like wondering what on earth is going Come on. Come on, man. And – I was a fun game, Dad. What are we doing? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And he would like sneak in coloring books underneath, so I would be paying attention to the book and not what's happening outside. And we would cover ourselves just in case there would be debris falling from everything that's happening. And then the next day we would go out, and the building beside us would be almost knocked over. Like literally, shots were being fired in our area where we could have died any day. So my parents decided to just pack up and take off and bring us to this country to start fresh. And here I was in a position coming full circle, coming in with a letter saying I'm put into academic probation after my parents sacrificed all that. Right. You know, as great as I do, as great as I'm doing now and as great as I do in the future, my parents are the real MVP. Yeah, man. You know, like they made the sacrifices that brought us down here or else, you know, I might be running a marketing agency see, in Bangladesh man. for all we know. All the time, man. If I stand tall, it is because I'm on the shoulder of two five-foot giants. I love that. That's that's all it is, man. Yeah. I was I was very well parented. I will give my parents that much. Like for all the ups and downs they've had in their own relationship, I can't fault them. Um, I, I I have nothing nothing but the greatest things to say about them for for the way that they raised me. Right? Yeah, and well, obviously we've had some time away from that too. Like we're I think I'm in my 30s now. Are you? I, I'm 32. You're 32. 33 okay. next month. So we're almost yeah. almost the same age over here, right? And um, you know, when when you're going through it, when you're a kid, when you're when you're with your parents and living with them and uh, you know, you sometimes hate the things that they tell you and the guidance that they give you and it doesn't make a lot of sense until you have more time away from it. So back into that scene where you're sitting with your parents and your mom's in tears, your dad's angry. Uh, he's giving you that hard knock love. Oh, yeah. My dad has a saying that he still uses it till today. He says, this is an absolute disaster. That was an absolute disaster. And and that's his, state, wow. that's his statement whether 
you know, we broke our leg by falling 30 feet in the air, right. or we dropped in an egg on the ground. You know, like you just yeah. never know what Everything. that means. This is an absolute Everything's disaster. Everything's an absolute disaster in my dad's eyes. So, uh, you know, I expected it, but I knew at that moment that it was more than just a statement. Like my dad actually meant it. Um, and it was heartbreaking for everybody, including myself. I felt like not only did I let myself down, I let everybody around me that was rooting for me down. Wow. Um, and then on top of that, I went back to school after a year and a half of trying out the Tim Horns train and deciding yeah, yeah. very quickly I need to uh, try something else. I went back to Sheridan College and that's where I actually fell in love with marketing. So so interesting. So you had this track you were on, you had friends that you had made, you had a community that you had built. Then that got interrupted, and you had this year where you were just removed from that altogether, working at Tim Hortons, while everybody else was moving along that same treadmill path that they were on. Are you still in touch? Or are you still connected not at with all. that UTM community, that cohort of students? Yeah, I'm not connected with them at all uh, for so many reasons. That's so but wild, man. you know, once in a while they'll send me a message to touch base and see how things are at. But to be honest, for a very long time, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed that I was kicked out of school while they moved on and got their jobs. Yeah. And I was at a position where I felt that, wow, I was the failure in that group. You know, my circle of friends, some of them are engineers, some of them are lawyers, and some of them are um, unemployed, right? They're still looking for their way, and that's completely respectful. But I was at a point where I didn't even have a choice. The university forced me out of the building. Wow. They vacated me. So I, I didn't want to touch base with them, but I'm at a level now where I'm proud of how much I've grown up that I almost have a completely new circle of friends that I would rather spend my time with because these were the individuals that played a role in my growth rather than trying to touch base and retie friendships that maybe fell apart back in the days. So is it safe to say that with regards to being bumped from school and, and, and being on academic probation and suspended, that the feeling that you'd never want to feel again is that feeling of shame? Is that safe to say? Big time, yeah. Okay, so we'll move this a little closer. Okay. And then when it comes to racking up $30,000 in debt and seeing your parents sad and devastated, is it safe to say that the feeling you never want to feel again over there is letting people down? Big time. Okay. Yeah. Two. I just need to yes everything from here on out, <laughs> and it'll just make it to my side. It's working. It's working. Bro, uh, I'm going to ask you a question, and feel free to not answer it. If it's too personal, we can There's the nothing out. too personal. I hope okay. I should say that. Let's hear it first. You talked about heartbreak Okay. in your book. And I'm just getting there. I'm diving deep into it in Project Reinvention. Can you talk about the feeling that you got from heartbreak that you never want to feel again? Yeah. Um, I think there's a thin line between not wanting to feel it again and I'm glad I felt it once. Mm. And I think um, one of the things that I encouraged everybody is – to think about how bad that felt if you experienced it in your life to remind you of how good things are right now. I was at a position where everything was going wrong, but I still had a girl that I was in love with. You know, I still had a healthy relationship and I felt like that was what's holding us together. And because of everything falling apart, I thought, hey, I can invest more of my time in that relationship. And it didn't work out. You know, it didn't work out because we had different visions in life and we went separate ways. Things started falling apart and um, I'm at a point where I reconnected with her somewhere down the road and we're, we're good friends. But I was at a position in my life where I felt like I shattered into a million pieces and I wanted to give up in every way. And it was depression to a full extreme where I can honestly say if it wasn't for my best friend Mike and a few other friends that were around me at that time, I don't think I don't actually know where I would be in life. Who initiated the breakup? Um, 
I initiated the breakup. She, the thing is, like, we were at a point where I think we broke up and made up so many times that yeah. it was one and one and the other. Like, I would break up, she would break up, and then finally I had to break up and saying like we should just stop. Like, it's a right. reoccurring thing. Um, it was tough. It was one of the hardest things that I think I've ever had to do because I know she was open to trying it again. But and it's like what could have been if I tried it one more time. But I'm glad I did it in many ways because I would honestly say I was more fueled in that exact moment in my life than I've ever been simply out of the desperation of never wanting to get back to that feeling Yo, again. Man, there's nothing like a breakup to yeah. really ignite the hustle. Yes. And some of the most uh, productive years in my life have immediately followed breakups. Also, man, is it just me or does music resonate more when you break up? <laughs> like there are some albums that I listen to now. I'm like, oh man, this album captures the breakup. Good one, Coldplay. I mean, you have to listen to Coldplay. If Come you're on, up, right? every R and B album you can think every of. R I think yes. I think Usher Confessions was <laughs> on rotation every freaking day during that time. And man, like I, I've always said, Usher has a way of dropping music at the right time in your yeah. environment based on what you're going through. You just find that song. Like when you're killing it, a club banger comes out. Oh man! When you're going through breakup, let it burn. Let you it know, burn, like yes. things just come in at the right time. So it was, yeah, music was a big part of it. Um, the frustration. I, I'm not gonna lie. It wasn't I wish I could tell you that I just flourished and I was happy and healthy about it but I was bitter and a lot of me wanting to be successful was for her to one day click on my Facebook profile and say man is he successful what did I throw away I screwed up and I wanted her to get that feeling because a lot of it was bitterness at first and part of me growing up was eventually getting to a point where I said you know she helped me a lot during my hard times too maybe I should reconnect and make sure she's okay too have you watched um, and, and man thank you for sharing that man that's a uh... We, we have a guest coming on in a couple of weeks uh, who has a podcast um, where she talks about dating. And I really want to understand like what dating looks like in 2019. I'm in a very happy, committed relationship. been there for a while. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of getting back into the dating pool right now. I just I feel like it's a game that I don't yes. recognize anymore. And I'm so lucky to have what I have. But I'm getting distracted. I want to go back to um, sort of the, the, the energy that comes from these moments, these difficult moments in your life and how they propel you forward. Have you watched any of these movies, Whiplash, La La Land, or First Man? La La Land and First Man I've watched. Okay, interesting. What did you think of First Man? I thought it was great. Fantastic. Yeah, right? man, what, a, what an experience. I right. think um, they've done a better job than I think any movie I've seen in terms of selling the emotion behind yes. what's happening. And they have something called in cinema like the Kuleshov effect. Have you heard of this? No. So this is when they just put the camera on your face and you have no expression, but because of the context, what happened before the scene, where the scene is taking place, the music, and all the things surrounding the face, you're able to understand what that character is feeling. Best use of the Kuleshov effect I've ever seen in a film where Ryan Gosling's character is standing on the moon. Spoiler alert, they end up going to the moon. <laughs> and they're focusing on his black visor. You don't actually see his face, but you're crying like a baby because yeah. you hear the music and he does something in that film where he, you know you know what you know what that scene is. Yeah. Right? And I'm like, oh my goodness, yeah. why am I crying looking at a fucking astronaut right now? It's insane how well it was done. I mean, I even remember the movie trailer before the movie came out was simply that first person view of Ryan Gosling going into the station. Yeah. And you remember they had that hiccup of like, oh wait, I need to pull out a thing. I need to yeah, pull yeah. out something. Does anyone have a screwdriver? Right, right. Uh, and and he was freaking out because of it. The emotion that you could feel in his heavy breathing oh, yeah. and the way that he was reacting and responding and how everything just overwhelmed you because they were rushing you in, so you good. really felt like you were in his shoes. So da Damien Chazelle has made those three movies. He's made uh, Whiplash, then La La Land, and First Man in Succession. Very interesting, yeah. 
I'm thinking I'm going to watch them all three in a row because I think I found the common thread with all of them. They're all movies about the price of ambition. So in all three of them, you have these characters who reach the top of their game. So in Whiplash, he becomes uh, Neiman, I think is the character's name. He becomes a, a, a world-famous uh, drummer. In La La Land, actor, jazz owner, jazz club owner, uh, whatever. And in First Man, literally goes to the moon. But in all three movies, they're all operating from this really negative, dark place. Like, they're motivated for what I would think are the wrong reasons. Like, heartbreak motivates one. Uh, ambition and hostility towards your 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 boss and, and your mentor figure, your father figure is one. And then in First Man, it's death. That's so interesting. So when I hear your story and you talk yeah. about these three really tragic things that happened, $30,000 in debt, breaking your parents' heart, having your heart broken, being kicked out of school, you've moved so far away from those negative emotions. What are you motivated by now? Because I feel like you've gotten away. Your life right now and the, the life you've designed for yourself, I don't think that those emotions come back. I could be wrong. Big time, yeah. So you've gotten away from something. Mm -hmm. But it's not enough to get away from something. You now have to move towards something. What are you moving towards? So the first thing that, um, to answer the first part of your question, what fuels me up probably more than anything and keeps the fire going is the desperation of not wanting to go back to those feelings, mm. right? Knowing that you actually know the alternative. You actually know what it feels like to be in ground zero and working your way up. So doing everything that you can to not get back into that situation, it has been the biggest fire and I'm very confident that that will never go away. Good. Like no matter how good life gets, no matter how much money's in the bank or how much things that I'm doing that I didn't even aspire that to do once upon a time, there will never be a point where I don't have the humility to remember how bad things used to be. And that's allowed me to keep the fire going. Um, where I'm going to, I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure what that destination is. Part of my uh, vision has been to create a new project every year, something that I've been doing year after year. You know, I did the book two years ago. I did the podcast right. last year. have a couple secret things coming up this year, very community-related we'll that I'm excited about. about. Fair, man. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of fun things happening. So a rule of thumb that we have in the candy box side that I brought into my life is every year we would try something that we've never done before. Mm. Completely new. Sometimes it will end up becoming a business. Sometimes it will end up becoming a passion project. But there's so many things that you could achieve just by trying something new. And that keeps life exciting because you're always wetting your feet. And one of the things that I think you can relate to from an advertising standpoint is when you're dealing with clients in different industries, you're always tested as a marketer. Yeah. Right? Like some people might have become successful because the business timing was right. The right. product that they put out in the market was right. But you and I get tested with is different clients. That's what if, are you good at marketing in the insurance industry as much as you be in the technological sure. industry? So we get tested as true marketers if we can shift gears. I treat life the same way. I treat life in the same way where if something new, exciting comes into picture into the picture where you've never experienced this, you it involves you growing to get to that level. Now you're being tested to see if you're actually at your peak or if you're just putting on a, a facade, right. pretending like you're this guy that you've established your career and the reality is you're not. And when I look at the social side and when I look at other people's Instagram profile, I kind of get that same feeling, right? When I put things out there using my Instagram account, I always ask myself, would I be able to deliver the same type of value and the same type of messages if I was there in person? So I'm constantly testing myself to see that if I could live up to that image and continue growing. I love that so much, man. I mean, you touched on us on so many great points over there. First of all, the importance of voluntarily doing difficult things and putting yourself in situations that are new and exciting to trigger that kind of growth 
And also you talked about your Instagram and living up to the image that you're putting on Instagram. By the way, I have to give you your candy. Thank you so much. Okay, I must have earned it by now, right? 100% you did. Amazing. Thank you. Um, I love these gifts. No, I mean, you have to. I mean, nothing but the best for our guests. Nothing but the best for yes. our guests, bro. Appreciate it. Um, you talked about your Instagram, and I want to I want to talk about something that we were alluding to right before we got we got online. And uh, we've been orbiting each other for quite some time. I've mm-hmm. seen you for for years now, man. We've been on connected on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, for a very long time. I think even Snapchat, bro. Our bitmojis <laughs> are like I don't know, like dancing and shit. But yeah. Um, <laughs> When I when I brought you to the panel for my Ryerson class last year, RTA 902, it was an influencer marketing panel. And I brought you on because you were a different kind of influencer than the one that my class was used to. My class thought that the influencers, typically female, typically fashion, lifestyle, you know, mini Kim Kardashians. And I'm like, no, no, that's not the only type of influencer mm. out there. You also have influencers that are in the success, motivational um, educational marketing space, uh, you know, uh, people who've grown up watching, admiring Gary Vee, for instance. I know that you and I, he's been, he's played a huge role in our lives and our upbringing as well. For and sure. In some ways fashioned what we do online based on what he has done and the, and the road that he's paved and other people as well. Something struck me as odd about your Instagram when I first started looking and putting together the brief. Hmm. Bro, you were banging out posts. First of all, your consistency was great, but you were getting thousands of likes. Right. Per photo, I mean thousands. So I have this friend who's a bona fide model, sixty-five thousand followers on Instagram. Shout out to DF. Um, very attractive woman. Last photo that she put, she's lying on the beach, ass cheeks hanging out. I mean, like this is the sort of photo that's so well done and engineered for an audience that should get thousands and thousands of likes. Think she's got like. 600 on that right bro your last photo is you sitting on a desk with a cup of coffee 2000 likes man i i thought the whole bikini thing was dying out and the coffee pictures were the way to go bro bald and beautiful is in right now yep it is yeah the beard game the beard game bro everything (laughs) man you you follow a long line of bald and beautiful men masari carl i don't know why i picked those two right away um (laughs) those are good names i i'd like my name to be up there with those those are okay but but what I what I loved about you is when I went into that RTA on two panel and uh, I had questions from the audience. And one of the questions was, "Do you buy likes?" I looked at that question. I'm like, "Who should I ask this question?" Because I had four guests over there, and I'm like, uh, "One of them is going to be offended, but I'm getting the sense that Mafuz wears his heart on his sleeve and he's honest, and he will answer this with candor." And I asked you that question, and without batting an eye, you're like, "Yeah, mm-hmm. I bought likes before. I'm a marketer. Yeah. I'm in advertising. This is lead generation. Of course I do." And I sat back. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for being honest about what happens over here. Because I imagine that if I asked that question to any of the other guests, I would hope that they would be honest about whether or not they've bought likes or not. Um, I think some of them have. But I don't know if I would have had the same kind of honesty. Bro, speak to that a little bit. Like, How did yeah. you become this honest and candid? It's in your book. You're open about all your flaws, warts and all. You're sitting over here opening up about your life. Like this honesty, this candor about who you are in your business, speak to it a little bit because I think that's a, that's a value that all of us, myself included, need to inculcate more. I, I love this question and I loved it when you asked this at the panel because it opened up the doors to a completely different conversation that I don't think ever happens at panels, right? I've been to many panels and a lot of them are very standard questions about what you'd expect people to ask. You know, like what do you do as an account manager? Who are some of your clients? What are some marketing strategies? You went deep. You went deep into asking something that I think a lot of people think about but don't openly talk about, which is what happens in the back end that some people question if the, if there is some authenticity beside it. And to me, a lot of it has come down to 
how do you win in this platform? Right? How do you win in this platform in a way where you're getting exposure and you're achieving the objectives? Now, different people have different objectives. Some people may be striving to get Kylie Jenner type numbers. Right. Some people may be trying to just get five good clients. So whatever their objective is, how do you get there? And part of me has been for me to help other individuals in a large scale, I needed to get to an environment where I was reaching out to people in a larger scale. So a lot of the campaigning and spending dollars and buying likes has a lot to do with getting my posts up on a um, in the top nine of the hashtags that I'm trying to attract in order to be presentable for more people. You know, as an example, it's, you know, Mississauga is a is a home to me. It's something I love and I really try to stand out in that community. So Mississauga is a hashtag that I use a lot. Now, when you tag on the hashtags, you're going to see millions of posts. Mm -hmm. And the chance of you being found in the millions of posts is very unlikely based on the fact that there's a lot of volume coming in. But using different tactics by putting yourself in a position where those posts are now being highlighted in the top nine of the Mississauga hashtag, you're now very likely to expose yourself to new people in the Mississauga community. Interesting. What I what what doesn't actually matter that much to me is the likes that I get on the post. It's more about the new people that I end up meeting as a result of that post. And I think that's a strategy that needs to be taken account taken into account if you're really trying to build authentic relationships with Instagram. So this is a really interesting tactic, and I want to get more into this tactic before we switch gears into the performance point aspect of the show. But your last photo, the one where you're sitting on the desk, coffee out, good photo, right? Good photo. 2,000 likes on that. How much money did you put to boost that ad? I put in... So my rule of thumb is to always have an ad active. I always have an ad active no every single what. day. And my, my active budget is $5 a day. That's it. That's it. Yeah, five dollars a day. So you're looking at about one hundred and fifty dollars to maybe two hundred if you really have two a couple things overlapping um, every single month. And five dollars a day for three days gets your post uh, visible by almost four thousand accounts. And what's the call to action? What method of what what type of ad are you running? Are you running one where you're requiring a click through or just follows? Like, what's the call to action? That's a really good question. Th this is part of a bigger discussion that I'd like to go into from a from a branding standpoint. Sure. Um, I think a lot of people will. Um, ask me for advertising s tips and advice and what they can do about it. And when I dig into what they've been spending their ads on, it's usually about selling a product, okay. right? Or sign up for my course or free consultation, sign up today. Right. And I realize they're going in for the kill before people even know who they are. Because right. when you're typically launching an ad, you're being found by a lot of people that don't know who you are. Yeah. So for you to try to get them get that sale, I think it's very unlikely that you're going to get a high conversion rate as a result of it. So what I do instead by preaching the branding first before sales is I spend a lot of my ad dollars actually becoming aware, making myself more aware to new people. So some people might see a post about coffee and that's okay. To me, that's fine where the call to action is to simply view my Instagram profile. So I'm giving them an opportunity to start a conversation. My rule of thumb for making posts on Instagram is to not get a sale but to use my post to start a conversation. And do you advertise to your followers? No, I don't. I, I, I advertise to different targets, but sometimes my followers may follow in that target, so they may see it. Interesting, because I've received some of your ads where I'm like, oh shit, my food is showing up in the sponsored posts over there. But I think it was based on a hashtag I was looking at or geographically where I was at. Yeah, it was probably geographic. Um, Instagram's ad tools are pretty limited, so I try to make it fit within a reasonable circle that makes sense, and a lot of it is geographic, so you, you, you definitely qualify, I would say, for a lot of the ads that... Um, you know, even with the age range, age yeah. range and geographic, you definitely qualify. So you would have seen a few of my ads. But to me, what's become interesting is what then what? If someone clicked on your profile or commented or sent you a DM, then what? And the then what is, I think, what where a lot of people are falling short, which right. to me, my then what has been 
How do I now take that conversation and build a relationship with that individual? Now it's sometimes back and forth direct messages. Sometimes I set up coffee meetings and meet them in person. But the amount of people that I've been able to meet in real life sometimes has resulted in business. Sometimes it resulted in us doing a podcast like today. Sometimes I get invited to speak at events. A lot of different outcomes come in play simply because I started a conversation over a picture of me drinking a coffee. There you go. And that's where it comes full circle where I think a lot of people that say, hey, if I push an ad to sell my book, people will just line up to buy my book. That's a sad disaster. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, as, as your dad would say, that's a total disaster. Yeah, right? absolute disaster. Absolute right. disaster. You've given me the confidence now. I think I need, I'm, I'm changing the way re, in real time that I'm thinking about my products. I've always been like, a, hey, you know, put it out there. If it's good enough in the world, it'll spread by word of mouth. But you're right, man. Like, there's a million books that you could see at Chapters Indigo. Why the fuck would you pick up the Burnout Gamble, right? The yeah. onus is on me to run those ads, to create that awareness, to prime my audience to receive that. 100%. And, and do it for five dollars a day five dollars a day it really doesn't take a big budget in order yeah, to get yourself out there your coffee man just yeah you know one put your coffee away and you know borrow one from your friend or go into your office and get a free coffee <laughs> yeah, that's it and and you'll be able to run ads it's funny how my mind has shifted since i've been um in the in the strategy of putting out ads every single day now when i get um invited to speak at an event and they give me a dollar sign for how much they'll pay me to speak at an event i typically break that out into how many days of ads i can run See, you know, so if they if they if they gave me like two thousand dollars, I'd be like five dollars a day. Okay, that's a pretty good ad. Smart that's a pretty snack. good ad segment. So I budget out a lot more of my ad dollars. Where if I really want to live up to the environment of um, branding first and marketing after, I I get into that environment where I have to prove it over and over again. I just got two cases of books shipped to my doorstep, and I'm excited to give them away for free at this event that I'm speaking at. And a big part of why I'm doing it is because. You know, a lot of authors that write their book, their strategy is they'll speak at events in order to sell more books, right? If I, if I preach how awesome my book is, people are going to line up and buy the book. Right. My strategy has been to write a book so I can get more speaking events. Interesting. My strategy has been get myself out there where people read the book and understand that there's enough value that I can offer where they're now allowing me to come out to an event and share that in a bigger sphere where they're, they're now paying me to get into to speak at that event rather than buying my book. And I tend to give out the books for free for just value add as wow. a thank you and appreciation for all the people that are there. See, like, I'm not there to win the book game. I've always been there to win the brand game. And as a result of that, I never think about how to sell more books. I think about how to get my brand out there and I'll always dish out money if it means more empowerment to my brand rather than selling one extra book. Damn, bro. Wow. Uh, that's that's a level of candor that I did not expect from any author. And here you are openly saying that I published my book as a branding tactic to get my brand out there to further my speaking and whatnot. I mean, when I published the book, The Burnout Gamble, I went in there with, with, with I would think, you know, just very noble, honest intentions of like, I want to package together my thoughts around burnout and my experiences, document it. It won't fit in a blog post here. It isn't a book that everyone can afford, and I'm going to share the knowledge. It wasn't until I started getting the more gigs, getting higher profile gigs afterwards that I realized, oh my goodness, like this is something this happening. Is unlocking a new tier right. of speaking that I didn't think I was going to hit this soon. It's amazing how much your status and value changes when you have a great product of yeah. a book. I stopped being introduced as a marketer, like author of author. the Burnout Gamble. Yeah. Like, oh, okay, I mean, I first heard of you uh, through your TED Talk and also finding out that you were an author. It actually yeah. took me a while before I realized you were a marketer. It adds another level of credibility to it. It does, right? and it opens so many doors. Um, my big empowerment, you know, I, I appreciate the love that you gave on my Instagram pictures, and one of the things that I do now is I have a photographer that that is on a monthly retainer. So Great we meet up once a month, 
every month and we do a photo shoot for different themes. So sometimes we go out to Toronto and do a city shot. Sometimes we go out to different businesses and do a building shots and yeah. suits. It's like going so, to visit a doctor, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like visiting the doctor. It's like different themes. Um, and it allows me to keep my Instagram fresh. But the main reason and my inspiration be behind why I did that was about two and a half years ago, I was reached out by event planners to do to speak at one of the biggest events that I would have ever spoken in my life. Um, it had about 30,000 people oh, and shit. it had other guest speakers like Tony Robbins that was being considered at the that time. Hell, so to me, this is like, you get a cult, bro? Like, yeah, I, I was like, it's 2016. I'm barely, I barely got my foot into the branding door. I'm still working on it. And here it is a golden opportunity that was going to make or break my career. And then two weeks later, they emailed me back and said, we no longer are accepting any more speakers, but thank you for being like, thank you for communicating with us and being considered. Oh, shit. I didn't even what? apply to this what and they were wrong? basically refusing me. You know, they're rejecting me for yeah, something yeah, yeah. I didn't even apply. Why? So I, here I am offended. So I sent them an email back saying, what on earth happened? I was really looking forward to this. Yeah, yeah. And they said, they started researching my social accounts and they just thought that there were better, better people to approach for the speaking gig. God damn, like who, man? And I don't know who ended up taking that spot, and I was beyond depressed. But then I did a strong audit of all my accounts. I looked at my Facebook, my LinkedIn, my Instagram, and I asked myself, would I have hired myself to speak at that event? And the answer was no. I really didn't think the quality of my work that was being put out there matched someone that deserved to speak in a stage with 30,000 people and get a large sum of money for doing so. So I decided I need to step up. Okay, but bro, Grant Cardone puts out that image right illustrious playboy family man smoking cigars jet setting 10 rollies on each hand driving lambos you and I both know working in the industry what he's doing. Yeah, right? like he's faking it right. hard, man. It's it, and it's not that expensive. That's it's, the sad part. It's oh, you actually, can rent a Lambo. Yeah, bro. like it's all like good. you and I after this episode can go and get a private jet from one of our clients That's to it. do a no photo problem. shoot and easy, pretend that easy. we just flew out in Indonesia to do a, a podcast. And we can we can have ten outfits, bank these photos for a long time. <laughs> we can we can design the shit out of the backgrounds over there, and we can fool our audiences into believing that we're jet setting yeah. around the world. It's and, very and, easy to do. And the, and here's the worst part: most of them will believe it. Yes. Right? Most of them will believe it. So there's a facade being put out there. But there's a big difference between um, putting out a luxury lifestyle versus putting out high-quality posts. A high-quality post doesn't necessarily need to be you in your fanciest outfit driving the fanciest car. It just needs to be a professional level where you're showing yourself in a position where other people are still posting selfies on their Instagram. Bathroom shots. You know, like taking photos in the bathroom at the club from the mirror and hoping that this makes you Instagram famous, where you're getting to yourself to a level where you're seen by more professionals. So ever since I started doing that, plus the book, plus the podcast, it's been really interesting that a lot of the doors that's been opening has been more about, hey, can you come here and teach us how to do Instagram better? Can you come in here and teach us how to sell more books? Right. Can you help us learn how to market our podcast? So a lot of different events that exist out there in our sphere, people just didn't consider that these things were relevant or existing mm -hmm. until they got their foot into that door and started doing those things. And I imagine that you got a lot more of that too. Um, your book came out before mine did. Did you mm -hmm. experience a lot of that as well? All the time, man. In fact, I published that book and I just disappeared off social for a while. It was just overwhelming to have that many people pay attention to you and focus on you. I mean, this sounds weird coming from a public speaker who stands in front of audiences all the time. But to have that much attention on myself, it just really threw me off. I was like, I need to just not be on Instagram. I need to not be on social for a little while. 
And what happened is I did that for an extended period of time, and I noticed that the book sales were going down, the course sales were going down, mm. business was starting to go down, leads were starting to dry up, and I'm like, oh, Hamza, you don't have an option. You can't just disappear off social. Right. This is permission to play. If you want to be successful as a marketer, you have to show up. So I had to rethink how it is that I wanted to show up online and how I wanted to bring myself authentically to social media, which is why everything you're saying right now is really eye-opening because I'm now reconsidering the brand that I'm putting out online, which I don't think is really a brand. I'm just doing things and I'm telling people and that feels natural to me. Um, but I think that I can be much more intentional about it. I think I can you know, do a better job of retaining a photographer, having a graphic designer on, on retainer as well, and just giving them things, having it polished up and put back online. Yes. Commiserate with the level of speaking and opportunities that I want to get in the yeah. future. I mean, you and know you this in the marketing game. There. I mean, the the cover of any package matters, yes. right? Like the, the packaging matters as much as the product itself. So you, essentially, you're just creating a better package. And I like the fact that you use the word polish yeah. because I think a lot of people may confuse that for to become better quality, they need to be less authentic because their authentic self is the crispy, uh, you know, selfies that they take on the spot rather right. than photos that they took maybe a month ago. Sure. And that's not necessarily the case of what makes you authentic. I think what's authentic is the the truth that you're putting out there with the posts. Um, a lot of the messages that I write, you know, I take pride in becoming a great marketer, but I'm also not an entrepreneur, right? I don't, I'm not the owner of the company, so I don't come out here trying to give people entrepreneur tips. I try to give them tips on how to market their business because I work with 10 different industries every single day. So I have the opportunity to actually come out confidently and say, I have experience in marketing and I can help your business regardless of whether you're an entrepreneur. Gotcha. So I think speaking your truth is important where your narrative needs to be coming out of that same person that you are. And the biggest change that I think I'm seeing b between people is some people are just straight up jerks. Yeah. Like they're absolute assholes, but they'll try to come out on Instagram like they're nice people. Yeah. yeah. Or the other way around, they're soft-spoken and they're shy and they try to come out as aggressive and abrasive. Yeah. Like they're trying to be Gary Vee, yeah. essentially. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's ruining the character and authenticity that they could have built around themselves. Um, I love the style of your podcast. I'm a yeah, huge man. fan of it. But if someone else tried to do your style, I wouldn't like them as much because I'm trying to find their unique um, substance that they have in their podcast and you wow. found yours I don't think another Hamza Khan should ever exist because the second that does I now sense that there isn't as much value in yours what's, what's amazing about your show is you're unique yeah. What's amazing about the way that you did that panel, which I want to give you major props for, was I've done so many panels, but the way that you moderated that panel is what made it unique and really special to me. I don't think a moderator gets enough credit in a panel environment. They usually give credit to the speakers, but essentially you basically navigate it through the entire conversation from beginning to end. Your style is what makes you stand out where a lot of people need to find theirs. So I encourage them to not be another me too, find their own legs and stand on them. Whew. Bro, wow, I needed to hear that. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. That was, uh, that was very, very kind of you to say. I mean, we're only on episode four of this, and we're only going to get better with time, but I think it's uh, it's been such a learning experience for me, and it's been an opportunity for me to be myself unabashedly. You know, I get a lot of comments about these podcasts. Hums, I didn't know you swear so much. Hums, I didn't know this. Hums, I didn't know that. I'm like, well, this is me now is. fully showing up and doing this in a way that doesn't have the the benefit of, of, of a long delay. I can't capture this and release it a month later. You know, I have to put it out very quickly, be very topical. Um, and I like it. You know what? Let's just put it all out there. This is who and I am. And it's more fun. It's more fun. I That's bet it's it more fun. It, this is the most fun outlet that I have. Yeah. By by far, man, more than anything else. I, I don't think I've, I would give up podcast for anything else. I think I would give up Instagram before I give up podcasting. 100%. It's just so much more fun. It allows you to really create a style through 
um, through through your voice, yeah. through the way that you speak, through language, rather than relying on the text limit on Twitter. Like you're really coming up with your organic way of doing it. And like I'm already on the show, Hamza. Yeah. Like I don't need to gas you up to make you feel good to try to get on the show. Like I'm on the show right now, so believe me when I say I love your podcast to a point where um, you know the other day I just saw it appear as a notification on my Spotify, and I was at work. And I immediately went up and grabbed headphones to hit play on it because I, I'm such a fan of the style that you have in this podcast. Wow. And anyone that gets into the game, I encourage them to find theirs. Yes. Thank, wow, man. Thank you so much, bro. I feel like we could have like a whole podcast series of just marketing alone. Like you are such a treasure trove of marketing insights, thank brand you. insights. And I, I want to pick your brain outside of this. But I want to bring it back now to the focus on peak performance, okay. productivity, and what it takes to make you successful. A lot of the listeners are tuning in, learning about you for the first time in many cases. The links are all in the bio. You can see where Mafu's is on Instagram, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. You can learn more about Candy Box Marketing. I want to reverse engineer what it took to get you to this point and what's keeping you as successful as you are and what will take you to that next level. And so I want to break it down into three components, time, energy, and attention, and ask you some questions okay. about how it is that you manage and optimize your time. Oh, how is it, how it is that you you manage and optimize your time, energy, and attention? Yeah, yeah. Ready for this? Sure, let's do it. Bro, let's start with time. Okay, okay, so waking up early versus sleeping late. Which one do you prefer and why? I definitely prefer waking up early. Um, I know this has been very cliche on this podcast now because every guest has said it, but sleep has become the true best friend in everyone's environment. Big com competitive edge. Um, I also think that, yes, it sounds cliche now because everyone's saying it, but you also need to ask, why is it cliche? Like, why is everyone that's coming on this podcast show repeatedly saying that sleep is a different component? Maybe there's something to it, right? Yeah. Maybe there's a big piece in that puzzle that you should be paying attention to. Um, I try to get seven hours of sleep, but I'll be, I'll be honest, I struggle to sleep sometimes, whether it is the copious amount of coffee that I chug throughout the day or simply the fact that I, I get very excited for things the next day that I can't sleep. And that's something I've been struggling with that I have a hard time sleeping. So one of the things that I started doing, which isn't highly recommended, but it's the truth, is I would put on Netflix in the background and I would watch it until I fall asleep. Mm. And the shows that I would put on as a rule of thumb would be shows that I've watched in the past. Okay, so, so I don't get so with. hooked on yeah, the story yeah, yeah. that I'm, I'm trying to see how it ends. I already know how it ends. Um, but actually, something strange has happened to me where I've trained myself to fall asleep to movies, where I actually can't remember the last time that I've went to a movie theater and didn't pass out while I was there. <laughs> it's actually a terrible habit to you gain. You curse yourself, bro. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I just can't do movie theaters uh, anymore. It's dark. It's it's quiet. It's, it's comfy. It's, it's comfy. Buttery popcorn. You just had a nice fat meal. Yeah. You know, you're you're gonna pass out. So I encourage seven hours. Um, I have a. Um, a habit of trying to schedule things the next day to just keep life exciting. So go. things that excite me like um, planning out events, planning out things like coming on the podcast show, doing a podcast show. There's just so many things that excite me where I have trouble sleeping because of the excitement that I have for the next day. Right. And it's become a little tough. So I try to get myself to bed even earlier to give myself the buffer time to get it out of my system. Interesting. I find that for me to fall asleep and really sink into a deep sleep, two things need to be true. I need to wake up super early and I need to work out. If those two things don't happen and regulate my caffeine intake, then I'm going to be wired. Yes. Uh, so what I try to do is physically tire myself out and mentally tire myself out. But the problem is I did that 23andMe test recently. It said that I'm genetically predisposed to waking up at 8.30 every morning. Wow. Here I am trying to pull a Jocko Willink and wake up at 3.30, <laughs> 4 in the morning. Yes. And it is just excruciating. But what I have learned is that if you can time it in such a way where you get that 7, get that 8, and you wake up, you're fresh, you're, you're, you're coherent, you're focused. Versus getting little sleep and then trying to substitute it 
that energy with caffeine and artificial stimulants, you're never going to get the same level of clarity and focus and the headspace that you need to be creative. I think that's the biggest piece. You're not going to be creative when you're tired. Mm. And in our line of work, what how we do things is more important than what we do. AKA, yes. we need to be as creative as possible. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you can't win in the creative space if you're not finding ways to be creative. Yeah. How how obvious does that sound? Um, you know, it's a, it's a big part of it. I love that you brought fitness into the routine. I think that's a big factor. Um, I have a routine now of going to the gym three times a week. I gotta say, you're looking good, bro. Oh, thanks, man. I have lost so much freaking weight since 2018. I think I'm at 53 pounds what? under now. Um, I, what are you doing, bro? Um, I'm, I'm doing just a calorie deficit right now, but one of the things I started introducing in the last seven months is uh, intermittent fasting. Uh, it's something that I've been doing strictly. Um, now, I don't know the science behind intermittent fasting, but I do know that it benefits me in a few different ways. Uh, number one, it's very hard to eat beyond the calories that you're supposed to in a short window. Yeah. Right? You get full, you need to take a break, and before you know it, your window's closed, and now you're fasting again. That's it. So I started by doing eight hours of eating time and um, 16 hours fast, and now I brought it down to seven, and I'm working my way down to six hours of eating time. So I'm slowly closing that window, and what's been really interesting is, as hard as I thought that it would be, I very quickly picked up the fact that your body adapts to it in about three or four days. So three or four days of, man, I'm starving, I just wanna eat, why did I sign up for this? I wanna punch my friend in the face for recommending <laughs> it. Like you get to that page, and then in day four, you're like, this is actually not bad. Yeah. But my real advantage, is the fact that I'm really just sitting down and eating once. The idea of having to sit down multiple times and stop what you're doing in order to get a meal in um, really makes it sometimes difficult to find ways to adapt, adjust your schedule. So if you have a schedule of 10 things coming up, you need to almost like rush number six so you can get a meal in, you or you go into the next meal, uh, next meeting and you're hungry because you, you're waiting for lunch. It's just not a healthy way to go. So I like the idea of having one big meal and no, no to like little to no restrictions. I don't want to say no because maybe that's not the right idea. You still want to be in a deficit, but you're basically sh cutting down the amount of things that you're eating, but just by eating it in that window. So I could go to McDonald's. I yeah. could go to Popeye's totally and get myself man. a mean combo and still be okay. Um, and then you move on. The fact that my window closes between 12 p.m. to 7, after 7 p.m. it closes, I'm now giving myself enough time between stop eating, sleep, and then wake up the next morning feeling good. I've given my body enough time to digest the food so I feel better the next day. And that's been a big factor to my energy. There's been a lot of times where I would eat at 10, 11, 12, sometimes 1, depending on how late I was up. And I wake up the next day feeling just as crappy. And so bringing intermittent fasting into the mix was a big part of it. So I find ways to include that in my schedule. And again, my timing is 12 p.m. to 7 p.m., giving myself that seven-hour window to eat. And then all around the clock, I'm just... Um, wow. You know, I'm I'm just really working on the energy that I have. What I'm looking forward to doing when we wrap up this season of the podcast is compiling all of the answers to these questions and like really just drawing out what a formula looks like for high. I can't wait to see and that. I can't wait to see it either, man. Um, and I know, I just know that the thing that's missing from my life right now is discipline around eating and diet. Like exercise has been consistent. I've been doing the same exercise since 2011, but that's also another problem too. I need to break out of that. Like I know philosophically that you know, if I want to achieve new gains or cuts, like I'm gonna have to switch up the exercise instead of doing the same old exercises again. But the diet has been a real problem. Like we walked in, we saw Kwaku just just going to town on a salad. Right. I looked at that and I was like, oh, you know, I know I need daily salad too, but there's pasta. Oh, yeah. Oh, pasta. Yeah. Oh, let's get it. it. It's really setting yourself for. Um, picking up the habit. And what, the reason I say setting yourself up is you're almost putting yourself in a position where it's 
more awkward to not do it than it is to actually do what you're supposed to do. It's the right thing to do. It is, yeah. I mean, one of one rule of thumb I have, you know, huge shout out for Tony, our developer at Candybox, is he's extremely shredded. He's so, he's shredded on Instagram, and I looked at his photo and I said, what on earth do I need to do to get there? And we started a routine where after 5 p.m. we would get into our cars and we would drive to the gym that's three minutes away. The fact that he's there with me in the office, it's very hard for me to tell him I'm sick or I'm not feeling well, or, you know, I, I think I'm going to be good. So we set up a system where we both go down to the gym together so we keep each other accountable. It, uh, we get excited of working out in snowstorms because it shows us that if we can get there in snowstorms, what on earth is going to stop us? That's it. Do you have a pre-workout powder that you use? I love that you asked this question. We oh. have to, man. We're pre, pre-workout connoisseurs in this podcast. <laughs> it's fun. You know what it reminds me of is uh, when Joe Rogan's like, that's awesome, man. Do you take LSD? <laughs> in every podcast show. Chin balls. Let's um, talk about that. No, I, I don't. Um, not for any reason, to be honest. I've uh, just kind of worked my way into that routine, and I've only been doing it for maybe about 13 months. So I still need to find ways to adapt to it over time. But the fact that I did it in phases, like I started by just getting into the gym. Not even diet. Forget diet. Okay. I just got into getting to the gym. Um, Tony's taught me something that was very counterintuitive, which was the idea of working out uh, three times a week through a program called Strong Lift. I've heard of it. Uh, Strong Lift. Very interesting program where you're focusing on compound workouts, okay. which is five different workouts, and that's it. Cleans and all these like full body workouts. Yeah, deadlifts, push-ups, push push overhead squats. press, yeah, yeah, squats. Yeah. Uh, gosh, I used to hate squats, and I probably still do, but I'm like immune to it now. It's one of those things where the idea of doing a squat is so difficult. You're like, I can't do this. Like, it's five in the morning. Why am I going to do this? But then when you're in the middle of your squats, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. And then next day you do chest or biceps, and you're like, whoa, okay. Okay, I didn't know I could curl. I didn't know I could right. bench this much. This is amazing. Only because you freed up all that for your testosterone from doing 100%. Squats, right? and, and what's great about the, the Strong Lift program is the program involves that every time you pass the reps that you're supposed to do, you add on five pounds. So you're always improving. That's it. So you're always getting challenged until you don't until you fail, and then you redo that weight again. So it's a very fun program, which was counterintuitive because I always thought five days a day, you know, five days a week at the gym, yeah. you know, eight to twelve reps. Work out different muscle groups, and here he is saying we're going to do five different exercises, and that's it. I love and it, three man. times a week. Um, and when I say setting yourself up, I don't mean pack your gym clothes. I mean actually trick yourself in getting on a treadmill for a warm up. Because by the time that you've gone all the way to the gym, changed into t-shirt and shorts, got on a treadmill, the the likeliness of you getting off the treadmill and saying I feel lazy, I'm going to go home. I guarantee you there's a 0% chance you're going to do it. So you're setting yourself in a position where you're getting to that point where it's impossible and it's awkward for you to work backwards and, and not end up doing that workout. Absolutely. And don't break the chain, man. Like mm-hmm. Even if you don't want to work out, just go to the gym, be on the treadmill for five minutes and get off. Yeah. Just don't break the habit of going to the gym. Because the minute you, you lose one day on that, the minute you lose one day in your momentum... Yeah. The elastic effect will be that you'll probably fall and teeter into the other side, yeah. which is you'll be away from the gym for the next two to three months. I would rather consistently do bad workouts yes. than perfectly do some inconsistent workouts, 100%. right? Like do it great, but you're going once in a while. Um, another part of it is start stacking things up over time and not going cold turkey, right? Like winning your diet over, doing cardio and going to the gym. If you haven't done any of those three, it's very difficult. Yes. So what I started doing is I just started working on gains first because that's fun right that's the fun yeah, part yeah, you're yeah. seeing gains your shoulders pops up the next day you wear tight shirts immediately because your biceps oh, flexed yeah. a little bit right you get into that zone so start with the Keep gym on checking if you have abs yeah yeah what are those abs, abs? Yeah, yeah. And, and here's the fun part when you're checking for those abs and you're like nope i still got a gut now you're automatically eating better yes. because you're like i want those abs why am i putting time in the gym i want my arms and my shoulders to pop more so more protein like you're automatically going to improve your diet because you want to get better at the gym 
It's interesting. You yeah. treat it almost like a design. You treat it almost like a product. You're like, I need to add this component to it, that component to it, reduce this a little bit. You're so observant. Like, I, I didn't even think of it that way until you said it, but you're absolutely right. It's like adding things in phases that allows you to get better each time. There you go. And, you know, so I went from going to the gym consistently, slowly improving the diet, then slowly moving into intermittent fasting. And then I said, you know, I need a little bit of cardio in there. And I absolutely hate running. <laughs> Worst thing in the world to do as a human being. But what I decided is to trick myself to run by signing up for a soccer and a basketball league. So let me ask you a related question to this. So this is question number two in the time section. How do you turn that downtime into uptime? So when you're on the treadmill, I would call that downtime. When you're going to drive back home today after this podcast, that's downtime. Do you let your downtime be downtime or do you find ways to optimize your downtime and add some element of learning, enjoyment, energy development? And, and... Yeah, I, I mean... I think a lot of it has to do with your personality and my personality is super introverted. Like I need a lot of time to um, spend to myself and a lot of those times is actually spent in my thoughts and I, it allows me to get things in order. Um, I watch Raptor games every single time it's on, not because, not just because I'm a huge Raptors fan, which I am, but while the Raptors game is playing, it's very easy for me to just be in my thoughts and think about things. Right. So I'm passively thinking about, okay, so I got a project coming up. I got to come up with a marketing plan. What do I think about this company? How do I tackle this industry? You know, I got a podcast episode coming up with Hamza Khan. What are some things I want to dive into? Like, I'll actually think about these things that while I'm passively sitting there. I think the hours are from 6 p.m. to 11 p.m. is super underrated. I think 6 it's p.m. to 11 p.m. It's, Tell me more. I, I think it's very underrated because you have a five-hour window every day that still allows you to get to bed on time to get your good sleep, where you could actually get tons done with very little distraction. The challenge with doing, trying to do things in nine to five, whether it's like your, um, your job, but at the same time, maybe you're trying to do other companies or you have a side hustle, you're working on different things. It's very hard to do those because there's so many distractions. Totally. Your phone is ringing, you're being pulled into meetings, you have other colleagues that needs attention, your family's awake. Like there's just things that are happening. Between six to 11, people are now settling down. They're having dinner, they're doing their own thing. It's personal time. Even if my phone rings, I don't necessarily have to answer it, yeah. which I usually don't unless it's like my dad. Because then maybe it's an emergency, right? So unless there's like a few, two or three people that call me, I actually don't answer my call, uh, my phone during 6 to 11 where I can use that time to focus on everything. This is where my podcast comes to life. This is where my book writing came to life. I wrote my book in 14 days. What? And I was able to do that by investing 5 p.m. to 11 p.m. for 14 days straight. There you go. And at the same time, a lot of my keynote presentations, I have one coming up on Wednesday this week, and I intend on working on those between the hours of five to, from 5 p.m. to 11 p.m. If you're not using those hours, you're really restricting yourself from getting the maximum of your time mm. due to the fact that you're balancing distractions along the way. Those are the magic hours for you? Yeah. Have you read It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work? By uh, Basecamp, thirty-seven signals. I'm 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 well aware of Basecamp and their story behind yeah. it. Um, but yeah, they they spend a lot of time talking about um, single focus and oh, getting dude. things done one at a time. That book was a game changer. Yeah. I read that book and it inspired me to write book number two. I was like, I don't know what book number two is going to be, but there's a lot of themes here that I need to follow through on. Like they talk about everything you just said, distraction in the workplace, nine to five being so fragmented and all of that. I'm, I I think I have a copy that I can lend you afterwards. Love it. I don't have it on me. I'll, yeah, next time I big, see you, big fan of the co-founder and uh, Basecamp is something we use at our workplace. So, and related to Basecamp, they talk a lot about being very selective about what you spend your time on. When I asked you to do this podcast, you easily accepted the offer over there. I'm very grateful that you did that. But how do you typically decide when something touches down into your calendar? Because your time is your most precious, mm -hmm. precious commodity. Uh, it's something you're never going to get back. And so you're giving myself, you're giving Kwaku and the listeners... 
Uh, you know, I think we're at, what are we at now? Wow, that's crazy. An hour and a half. You're kidding me. We're, set, we're setting the record over here. I, I seriously had no idea it was even an hour. Well, let's, let's keep going. This right? is flying. This is, this is, this is really we're good. on a roll. Um, yeah. How do you decide that you're going to give up two to three hours of your time? Like, what kind of, you know, mental acrobatics need to happen for you to commit your most precious resource to somebody else? Sure. This is a really good question. Um, I live and, and breathe by Google Calendar. Like, it's my best friend on my phone. Um, it's something that I use actively in order to figure out if I have the time to accommodate things. Um, the challenge that I'm having now is I'm getting busy to a point where typically when people reach out to me, and it's usually a weekday activity, um, I usually have to push it out two months from now. Like, my March is booked. Yeah. My February event has been in my calendar since December. So it's getting to a point where I need to push things out two months ahead. If the meeting, if the interaction happens and I open up my calendar and there's some space, if I have something in that space, I will always say yes. I think there's a lost opportunity. And I also think you're not being true to um, the relationship building part of your grind if you're not actually going out and meeting other people. I've been meeting so many people and 90% of them, it's more about them hoping to get something out of it. It's, I don't gain anything out of it. Same. Usually I'm sitting there and giving them free advice. Yeah. Um, once I, a day for me. Yeah, 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 100%. It's getting to the point where um, I think this one Starbucks in my neighborhood is getting keeping the lights on as a result yeah, of me coming there more often. Like it's, it's, it's getting crazy, but I will always say yes if I have the time. Yes. Um, I had an event last week that just got rescheduled, and they're scheduling it on top of a date now that I have another event. I had to unfortunately say no. Yeah, I would do the right? same. I would never screw another event over because someone else needed to reschedule. So rescheduling is okay. Life happens. Sure. I mean, it was a snowstorm for God's sakes. But at the same time, if it now conflicts with another item in my calendar, I give them the hard no. So if you have the time, I say do it. Don't lose out on opportunities to build relationships or get things done. I used to be really offended when people used to say, or not offended, I would feel really guilty when people say, you can't schedule me in this week, Hamza. Like, I have to meet with you next week. Yeah. And now it's just as bad. It's like, we're going to meet in March. Like, mm-hmm. I, there's nothing I can do. Because I can schedule you in on a day where I'm meeting somebody else, but I'm a deep introvert just like yourself. I only have enough energy for one good conversation per day. This is the one. Yes. Whoever's going to meet with me afterwards, family, Bailey, whoever, they're not going to get the yeah. best me. And that's just the reality. Right. Like, I'm operating with really old software. I'm a 31-year-old guy. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm running on that iOS right now right? i relate I to this do, so much yes I, I can't i can't do too many good conversations in a day and so like if i had back-to-back teaching and speaking whatever comes first is going to get the best me whatever's going to come afterwards is going to get diminished yeah 50 like why did we hire Hamza to speak over right and exactly and you're not doing yourself a benefit nor the event a benefit That's by taking it. that on so the best thing to do is to actually say no or reschedule them um i've had opportunities where sometimes the event would be fortunate enough to actually reschedule their dates to accommodate me and that means a lot to me. Yeah, so man. those are the events that I give 100% to. But um, I'm excited about the idea of meeting other people. And this is where like the conversation of oh, Instagram world is getting too digital. No one is talking to each other. Where I'm becoming the counterattack yeah. to that conversation where I say I've met more people in, in person this year than I've ever had. And Same. thanks to Instagram. All right. Thanks to that. I've been going out there to more events than I've ever had. So if you're not taking advantage of the socializing that's actually... Um, that you're capable of creating as a result of these online platforms, you're falling into the trap of actually using the online platform to live that facade lifestyle. Totally, man. And I'm afraid of the day when I'm going to be able to like look at who I'm following and not remember the last time I met someone. I'm trying very hard to counteract yeah. that. Uh, so on Facebook, I have this rule. Anytime I, you show up on my feed for your birthday, if I wish you happy birthday, great. 
another year of friendship. Fantastic. If I don't remember who you are last time we talked, it's like an instant unfriend over there. And like, it breaks my heart to do that. And you I, do it on their birthday, mostly. That's I'm cold. I, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm guilty of that, too. Yeah. I see a lot of faces show up on my birthday wish that I don't know. I at least give them 24 hours. So you got to start giving. But you they, can't you can't delete them on their but birthday. Bro, sometimes there's weird things. Where like uh, like most, most of the time, 99% of the time, we're, we're friends and we're good. And I'm like, oh, I, I remember you. We were in high school. Last time we talked two years ago, that's fine. No problem. Sometimes I'll find some creeps and I'll be like, no mutuals. You don't live anywhere close yeah. to North America over here. How did you end up as my friend? And I think what happens is some of the early days of Facebook, it became a gold rush. You just accepted every friend, mm. friend that you got just to build up a community. And I think I'm dealing with some of those remnants right now. But I want to get to a place where somebody said this to me one time. On LinkedIn, how you decide to add someone is, have I shaken your hand in person or do I want to shake your hand? Those are the only criteria for accepting wow. people on LinkedIn. And here I am getting requests from SEO experts in Delhi all the yeah. time. I'm like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> Stop adding me, bro. Like, just follow me. Just follow me. I yeah, want to be your yeah. friend. I love that follow is a thing now on, on oh, LinkedIn. God, it's so necessary. Done, um, is, I also want to leave your listeners with some tools because I think they're Please. just as important. Um, I like using Toggle for personal life. T-O-G-G-O. Yeah. Toggle.com, yeah. And I say, for re I, I say for personal life because Toggle is usually utilized for uh, businesses sure. and projects that you're doing. Law offices, designers. Yeah, and as a project manager, I use it all the time for projects because you got to stay within budget. You have to get a feel of where most time was spent. Gotcha. But imagine doing that for real life. Imagine that you start tracking different components. So like the time that's spent on branding, the time that's spent on fitness, the time that's spent on... Um, personal development. You've got a visualization. Yeah. yeah. At the end of the month, you you literally get a pie chart and it shows you where most of your time is getting spent. So I think for you to make adjustments and get the most out of your time, you actually need to audit. If you don't have results, it's hard to make measurements and do different decisions. Totally. Right? You're shooting in the dark. One of the best investments I ever made was mint.com and visualizing where my spending goes, but I haven't been able to visualize where my time yeah. goes. And I've, I've talked to a couple of people about like getting together and building out an application that takes your data from Google Google uh, Calendar and visualizes based on how you color code and what you label. That would be where such a dope app. Something has to exist like yeah. that. I haven't found it yet. So That's so interesting. Just be like, hey, like, hey, Mafuz, you want to just like put a thousand dollars into this and build it why, ourselves? Yeah. Why are we not talking about this further? We'll take this offline. We'll, we'll take this offline. We'll take this offline. Let's get into yeah. the energy component, man. So, yeah. As you know, I brought out the Mafuz Shodri signature. Dude, I am so happy that you have that <laughs> suit and shirt on. Like that makes me happy. I was hoping for a picture where we just back to back <laughs> lean like that. We're still gonna do it. We're still. We, we'll do it. You've got a distinct look. Like you've got a color, you've got an outfit that I would say is part of the Mafu's character. Do you do that because you get more confidence? Um, it's a good question. And to be honest, I haven't put enough thought to it to give you an answer that I think would truly justify the meeting, the reason behind it. I, a few things I would say is I wanted to move away strongly from the, the suit and tie look. I think right. especially as an ad agency and a creative agency, I think we actually have the capabilities of doing that. So to make ourselves stand out and pre more presentable in a, in a casual environment, you know, a group of young millennials going through and meeting businesses, I think we've changed our dress codes pretty significantly in order to have those kind of conversations. Um, I remember when I first started uh, working for Candybox, and it is in my book if you've ever made it to that chapter yet, um, we went to a meeting with Scotiabank. And as I was in the elevator, I had a suit and tie on and Daryl looked at me and he basically told me um, to remove the tie. He said, we're marketers, not bankers. Mm. And when I got off that elevator, I looked around and everyone was wearing a tie. And I very quickly realized that we're not in that same industry. The way that they carry themselves, the way that they dress, the way that they act and this, the office space and the cubicles, everything I saw in that floor 
made me realize it's nothing that I want it to be. So I changed my style up to a point where I think we're at a generation where people are more accepting of you not coming in for a business meeting with a suit and tie. In fact, you could probably get away with a decent long sleeve shirt. Totally. The, and, most, yeah. the most confident guy I know used to be my former uh, co-founder, Kareem Splash Effect. And he would walk into meetings sometimes with a turtleneck and a chain. And I'm like, oh, God, like <laughs> this is Princess Margaret Foundation. Yeah. We're trying to close a major hospital over here. What are you doing, bro? No problem. He just owned it. And, you know, I've taken that away thing to myself. Like, Hamza, you have to find the thing that you feel the most comfortable in. I think I've zoned out a little bit. It's a, it's a blazer, it's a black V-neck and or turtleneck. And I'm like, that's the, yeah. that's the Superman outfit right there. When you wear that, you don't worry about your appearance. You just show up and you're authentically yourself. Yeah. You walk differently, your head's back, your chest is out. Like, you feel more It's, it's more about how you carry yourself as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, can't, I go to meetings sometimes with a Superman shirt underneath. There you, you know, go. I've, I've done it. And you know it. Nobody else knows. Yeah, there's an S on your chest. Just button up. Yeah, there's an S on the shirt. I mean, I will unbutton it. I will show off that ass. They need to know. You know, it's raised, bro. Like, <laughs> you know, you are your own superhero, yes. and that's that's the message I was trying to present the day that I wore the S. Um, a big part of it too is find out who you want to be. You know, just because I said, "Hey, we're trying to push the millennial agenda," doesn't mean that you need to dress like me. Sure. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to who you want to project yourself to be. Like, if I was a young individual today and I was trying to be taken more seriously in my workplace, I would come in with a suit and tie. I would come into those meetings and I would come in with a suit and tie to present myself as someone that should be taken more seriously rather than wearing dre dressing up like the kid that they think I am already. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of opportunities to dress differently depending on where you are, where you work. Um, I was in a panel recently where, um, uh, you know, representing as an ad agency, someone put up their hand in the audience and said, you know, my, my sleeve is covered up because I have a lot of tattoos. Is mm -hmm. that going to kill my opportunity to work in, a, in your kind of environment? And one of the panelists spoke up and said, yeah, you should be presentable. You should look around and what? see what they're wearing. And uh, you should, you know, you should cover it up because people need to take you seriously. So you should dress formal. And, you know, I used to be the guy that would let people get their opinions out. Yeah. But lately I've done so many panels that to keep it interesting for myself, Sometimes I will argue with them, especially when I strongly disagree. And I called them out and I said, we have designers in our agency that have full, full tattoo sleeves, the most colorful tats you'll ever see. And we love that they have that because that speaks to the creative designer that they are. Yeah. So I told them that it's less about who you, less about what you think this, the norm is about wearing suits and ties and actually researching the company and seeing what their culture is. And you never want to work for a company like that. Anyways, man, one of the most, like yeah. we talked about it earlier, never want to feel like that moment. I remember back in my clubbing days, man, I was standing in the club. I think it was... Um, it's one of these clubs that start with the letter M. It's on it's on the street, like the tiny little street where the A&W is. I forget the name of okay. it. Uh, it'll come back to me. But I remember like getting denied entry into the club because I was wearing sneakers. And they weren't sneakers. They were like dressy sneakers. They're nice right? sneakers, yes. And here I'm thinking like, man, I spent $200 on these shoes. They're really nice shoes. You're not going to let me in? Like, come on, bro. And I just remember walking home dejected being like, fuck. Yeah. I never want to feel like that again. And then I changed my mindset halfway in the walk home. Like, you know what? No, I'm not going to give that club my money. If they're going to discriminate against my shoes, fuck them. Yeah. I'm not going to go there. And I've changed the way I think about every space oh that I walk gosh. into. I'm like, if I you can't this. accept me the way I'm dressed, the way I look for, for, for whatever you see here, if this isn't good enough for you, if this isn't good enough for your establishment, you're lost, buddy. Yeah. You're lost. Yeah, that's so good. And it's like, don't play by the rules. You that's make it. your own rules. Make your own rules. You yeah. go to the clubs that will either accommodate you or, hell, start a club. Oh, <laughs> you know? Know. Start went, your own club. I went to a wedding one time. Yeah. And this guy, man, shout out to this guy. I never met him. I, I don't know who he is. He was from, from, the, from, the, from the bride side. And uh, he was wearing, like, red Octobers. Yeezy red Octobers okay. on his suit. And I was like, oh, God. That's brave. Brown wedding. That's brave. Yeezy, like, bright red, red Octobers. They probably knock off. 
and he's a brown guy, and I'm just assuming that he didn't actually spend $2,000 to get the official. That's terrible of me. And then he also had a throwback on. Yeah. In the wedding. Brown wedding. Oh, my god. Red throwback. Red Yeezys. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, man. He, he was moving through that space as though he was meant to be there. And he was obviously meant to be there, but he carried himself with a sort of confidence that made me think to myself, he has no idea that he looks so out of place here. But fuck, man, shout out to you. Yeah. Shout out to you like, for owning you. Owning you. Owning man. Yes. It was amusing at first, but towards the end, it, was like, <laughs> it translated into, in, into, into yeah. sincere admiration yeah. for that. I mean, part of me wonders, like, were they even aware that they were out of place? Or was it, were they in that mentality of, I don't give a shit what anyone else thinks. I'm, you know, I'm owning me, yeah. and no judgmental people in here affects me in any way. Because we, we overthink it all the time. And that's a perfect segment segue into the, the last segment of this performance point uh, portion of the show, which is, how do you maintain your sanity on social media? A place where the performance element is so alive and well, where you have to act and behave in a way that you think you need to act and behave in. How do you, how do you as Mafu Strodri maintain your sense of self, maintain your happiness and confidence while simultaneously performing for others? Mm. Um, this is a really good question, Hamza. One of the things that I, um, I posted this uh, maybe about two days ago, and I made a post about the ability to control the noise on social media. You know, there was a lot of conversation that was happening about people feeling overwhelmed. Uh, my DMs are filled with questions that are around the idea of it affecting their mental health. And um, out of full respect, I would take as much time to help them out. But one of the things I asked myself is if you were following zero people for Instagram, uh, zero people on Instagram, and you opened up the Instagram app, how quiet would that feed be? Oh, I'm getting chills thinking about that. Right? right? How quiet would Instagram be? Is that even be? possible? Can you follow them? You can unfollow every single person and you could open up Instagram. Yeah, you Kanye could do that. only follows Kim, right? Yeah. yeah. So every time he opens up his Instagram, Kim. he's only seen Kim. And Kanye. Kim makes him feel good. So yeah. he doesn't mind seeing Kim every single day on his Instagram. So I ask myself, why don't I do that with my feed? Why do I feel the need to follow back every single person that follows me and increase the noise in my Instagram feed? I think of it almost like a radio dial. You control the noise level. You decide how loud you want your feed to be or how quiet you want to be based on using the unpopular button called unfollow. No one likes talking about it because they're worried that they're going to get unfollow. I put myself out there and you know what? There was about three people that DM'd me and said, okay, message noted unfollowing you. And I said, awesome. Thank you. I'm not even mad. This like if great. that makes you feel better and your, makes your experience better, by all means, I encourage you to do it. So I went out there and said, if I really wanted people to win, with this platform, I need them to understand that they can they have a bit more control than they think. And it's not very overwhelming when you start turning off a lot of people. So I actually spend every quarter, once every quarter, I sit down and go through my feed and unfollow a lot of people that either I don't really remember who they are, or people that I feel make a negative impact to me so they could sometimes piss me off by some of the things I say. It could sometimes be negative and complaining. It could sometimes be too many ass photos and maybe I don't want to see any more of those. I may get in trouble. Um, so I start unfollowing a lot of people that um, I no longer need to keep up with them in order to maintain my my time on Instagram. Damn, people are telling me about this this documentary that I need to check out on Netflix called Minimalism by this woman named Marie Kondo. Such a good, yes. So I you're doing essentially the digital version of that if something's not bringing you joy, if it's not contributing to your life in a positive way. It's a cleanse, yeah. Cleanse out the crap that you don't need in your system. See, in this I'm, case, your your digital system. I'm the worst. Guys. People follow me, and I'm like, I'm so happy that you follow me. I'm going to follow you right yeah. back. And then I realize, I'm like, oh, my feed is it's, right. It's, it's not and, what I thought it was. And and the thing is, like, that just makes you a good human being. Like, yeah. you're doing that as a result of trying to thank them, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it also comes to a realization somewhere down the road that you're following too many people. Like, right. I can't keep up. Following two thousand people. Like, imagine that you're in a room 
both 2,000 people talking at the same time. Yeah. It's a little scary, so you're kind of doing that in a digital environment where I get why that's overwhelming. So I encourage a lot of people to actually take time and clean that out. Um, the other thing is, I think it's a lot easier for me to have a good experience because of um, just the fact that I don't get a lot of hate on my social. I'm very yeah. thankful for it. Um, I know that a lot of people that get hate on their YouTube comments and their Instagram, it's a little harder for them to stay sane. Sometimes yeah. they lose their mind, like a lot of the celebrities we know. But for me, I think I have a healthier environment, and I think a lot of that has come down to the idea of just being open and kind to That's others. It. That's it, man. Right? And I remember I spoke at a... Um, an event last summer for Scouts Canada. They nice. gave me the honor of doing a keynote at their annual event. Right and when I walked into that event, everyone that I was trying to shake hands with would shake their hands with their left hand. And it confused the crap out of me because, like, think about walking in and everyone's reaching on their left hand. Yeah, yeah. Right? So I, like, it's weird. So it threw me off a little bit. And the first time I did it, because I thought maybe they're left-handed. The second and third time, I thought they were playing a mean practical joke on me like everyone was in on it except me yeah. but the fourth time I finally spoke up and I said what the hell is going on like I need to know am I doing it wrong like have I been doing handshakes wrong all my life like they started messing with my brain and they taught me something that forever stuck with me that I really dove into and now I obsess over they taught me about the story of the Ashanti warriors which I encourage everyone to check out a really good story um, and a big part of it came down to when the Ashanti chiefs would meet up with other individuals they would shake with their left hand because when you're shaking with your right hand, it involves you dropping your sword but keeping your shield up. Saying, I'm not going to attack you, right. but I still don't trust you enough, so I'm going to keep my shield up. But when you're shaking hands with your left hand, you're dropping your shield saying, I give you full opportunity to strike me if you might, but I'm dropping my protection and shield. I'm opening up to you in that level where we have a full bond and trust with each other. Wow. And that forever stayed with me where I'm, I, I'm not going to change my handshake to a left handshake because I think that's going to need more explanation than necessary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I definitely took the value behind opening yourself up to a level where you're dropping the shield when you're communicating with others. So the openness that you see, the transparency has been so heavily on kindness. And as much as I could tell you, like, someone cool like Drake has taught me this message. It was actually Taylor Swift hey, that taught me this message. Taylor. Shout out to Taylor <laughs> Swift. Um, you know, made, trying to make my girlfriend happy while I was in college, I took her out to a Taylor Swift concert. <laughs> yeah, I read about this. And um, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was a good time. And I got a floor seat, I got a meet yeah. and greet, and I didn't have any money. So I was really paying out of my pocket <laughs> here. And uh, during the meet and greet, it taught me something that resulted in me posting on Instagram with a bold statement. I said, Post quality content like you have 500,000 followers while engaging with them like you have five. Because people will say, why, you know, maybe I'm too busy. Maybe there's too many followers that I have on my account. Maybe I'm becoming too popular. How can I give them that same attention that I used to? Well, when I went into that meet and greet, Taylor Swift just destroyed this concert. People went all out. One of the best shows I've seen in terms of performance. Yeah, and when I saw her in the meet and greet, she was speaking to every individual that was in front of her table like they were the only ones in the room. There's no surprise to her success when you say it like that. There's no, no surprises there. And this is why I fully understand why teenagers or any people of any age absolutely adore her because she gives them that attention like we're best friends and yeah. not like she's a celebrity and you came to my show. And I thought that was the coolest thing. So now when I do keynote speaking, I stick around as long as it takes to do a meet and greet with them after. Same. So even when they're lining up, I promise to always buy myself more buffer in every talk that I do so that I can spend that time having that one-on-one -on -one conversation. And the things that you learn in private inspire me way more than the things that I hear in the public environment of a keynote talk. Wow, brother, this is, uh, you've given me so much to chew on over here. This like, was this fun. Is, this is good. I'm thinking about going back right now and just rethinking how it is that I've structured my own social presence online such that 
you know, rather than building out this massive arena of people, just reducing it down to one nice backyard barbecue. Yes. Turning my Instagram into a backyard barbecue and just people that I know, people that I'm familiar with, people that I love and like, and people that I want to be around. And no offense to all the people that might get cut in the process, but if I want to have a, a healthier, a more safe space online for myself, a place that I truly enjoy being, uh, the onus is on me. I can't wait for anybody else to create that experience. Yeah. I have to create it for myself. Well put. I 100% agree. Brother, my last question for you is one that I've been struggling with. And uh, I switched over to Bell recently. And for some reason, I'm getting a lot of unknown callers. And it just spikes my anxiety every time I get a phone call. I mean, only call me if something is a dire emergency. If you're dying, if you're kidnapped, if you need somebody to come and save you, call me. Otherwise, send me a fucking text, bro. What right. are you doing? What are yeah. you doing? How do you deal with phones in 2019? I know it sounds like a really pedantic, pedestrian question, but I'm struggling to deal with my phone. I don't know what role my phone plays in this 2019 mix of apps that I have where I'm expecting asynchronous communication. But now some people are insisting on like, I'm going to call you and you better pick up. Yeah. The, the saddest part is it is so easy to get phone numbers these days. Phone oh, numbers yeah. of people that you want to market to, like reverse if I, look up, yeah, on all that, yeah, hundred percent, or even just dial random four one six numbers and see who you get. <laughs> like you'd be amazed with how easy it is to get hold of local people. So your phone's gonna ring a lot, regardless of whether you want to dodge it or not. And the more popular you start getting down the road, you'll find that more people are getting your phone numbers to friends or acquaintances or family. Which I forbid them all from ever giving out my number. We actually have a very bold conversation about giving out numbers in our friendship, um, and. It comes to a point where there's only a few key people that I would ever answer my phone for between the hours of 5 to 11. We talked about that earlier. We talked about being able to minimize distractions. Why not also use an opportunity to not beat yourself for, for not taking phone calls? During the hours of 9 to 5, I answered them all. We have a system with our agency where it will recognize that it's an agency call. Someone's calling in through the extension number. So my phone will go off by saying Candy Box Marketing on the caller ID. So I know it's a client call. Those ones I will always take. But it's your life. It's your timeline. It's your busy schedule. Why are you letting other people interrupt your schedule with their phone calls? Especially if you're in an environment like, you know, we're both introverts. We need our me time. I will never answer calls from unknown numbers on me time. So I think using your cell phone really comes down to whether or not you have the flexibility to answer them and how close of a relationship that you have with other individuals where you, you are giving out their number and adding them on your phone. Absolutely. So it's, it's not easy. Um, some people are a lot more social than we are and they would openly answer any phone calls. Some people are applying for jobs and they're expecting callbacks. So I understand where there's environments where you need to answer your call. But when you're in a, in a place where you're copacetic and you're feeling good about how things are going and you don't really need anybody or you're not expecting these calls, don't feel the need to answer them. Don't beat yourself up for it. Um, you have an environment where you decide how to use your device. It's your device for a reason. Mm -hmm. Manage your device. Don't let your device manage you. Love well, my last question for you, man. This is a big one over here. And it goes back to that initial theme of you know, how your dad put it. Total disaster. Absolute disaster. <laughs> right, you've, been, you've been to rock bottom a few times. For people who are similarly in rock bottom, who are, who are there right now, who are heading towards it, who are feeling the cold wetness of rock bottom, what advice do you have for them? Uh, people who might be feeling dejected, people might be feeling like it's time to hang it up and give up. You know, what advice would you would you give to somebody who is where you've been in the past? Mm. I mean, where I've been has been a excruciating experience that I wouldn't wish on anyone. So if you are in that, um, it's not easy. I know it's tough. I know there's times where you really feel like giving up and you don't think you can get out of it. Um, my biggest advice to you that I've been pushing harder in anything that I've done probably more than anything I've done even in the world of marketing, is the idea around if you're not happy with where you are in your life right now, 
in any way, financially, emotionally, physically, you need to take this as an opportunity to reinvent yourself. And the idea of project reinvention has really come down to the thesis that there's just so many tools and resources out there than there've ever been. In the history of humanity, more resources out there in your fingertips, and it's a big step in order to get out there and reach out for help. Uh, when I was younger and I was shy and I was in university failing, I used to beg for people to come up to me with helping hands, you know, to give me a hand and get me out of this environment. I was too shy, so I never verbally asked for it. I would just silently wish someone would do it, and it would never happen. No one would ever come out there because they just didn't recognize that I was in pain. So I went out there and grinded myself. And while I was grinding and looking for these resources, I came around tons of materials that helped me, uh, whether it's books, whether it's online articles and blogs, whether it is people um, that are out there that are available to help you. There's just tons of resources out there. So I encourage you to find resources, determine where you want to be, and then work backwards. Once you figure out where you want to be, it's a lot easier to work backwards because now you know whose footsteps you're walking, who you're learning from, and what resources you're looking at. Um, my biggest help, and I give tons of shout-outs to my friend Mike on in the book as well as many podcast episodes. Um, I was very fortunate to have a friend that would give me the tough love that I needed to hear. And it taught me to never be kind to a point where I sugarcoat my love for others. So when I think someone is screwing up, I let them know, but I, I don't leave them there. I help them along the way. If you find yourself a friend that can do the same thing for you, I highly encourage to clinch on and ask for that help because it changed my life completely and I couldn't be happier. Brother, you have uh, a tagline for your book, which is from tragic to magic. But in the two hours that we spent chatting over here today, it's very obvious for me to see, and I know our listeners and our viewers online can see this as well, that there's nothing it's magic about this. Mm -hmm. There's deliberate practice, there's intentionality, there's process, there's systems, there's mindsets and beliefs and rituals that have gone into the success that you've had, the success that you have right now, and the success that you will certainly attain in the future. Mafus Chaudhary, you're the fucking man. This has been so much fun. I think this Thank is the you. deepest I've ever gone into a podcast show, man. I... I love every part of this episode. This We're going to have to do this again, brother. Yeah. I'm, I'm super excited. Wow, this is, uh, this is awesome. Uh, where can people follow your adventures online? Sure, I would love to connect with every single one listening. Uh, my Instagram handle is C. I call Instagram my digital caffeinated beverage that I'm addicted to. Um, I just can't keep that part away from me, so you can get a hold of me very easily. My Instagram handle is C. That's M-A-H-F-U-Z-C. And Hamza, big thanks uh, to you for having me on the show. I got to tell you that when I gave you that example of I can't sleep because I'm excited for something the next day, bro, I barely slept last night. I've been oh, so excited for coming in today. So thank you for having me today. Let's crush some jelly beans, bro. Let's, yeah, do, this. let's do it. Thank <laughs> you. Care.